There was an idea to bring together a group of remarkable people to see if we could become something more. So when they needed us, we could fight the battles that they never could. I'm here to talk to you about the Avenger Initiative. This is Now Playing Podcast Review of The Eternals. We came here 7,000 years ago to protect humans from the Deviants. Part of Now Playing's Avengers and Marvel Comics movie series. The Avengers. That's what we call ourselves. Earth's Mightiest Heroes. Never heard of them. Hosted by Arnie. I don't wear a cape. Jacob. Who do you think's gonna lead the Avengers? I could lead them. And Stuart. Legendary. Deadly. What are you prepared to do? At NowPlayingPodcast.com, you can find reviews that span the entire Marvel Cinematic Universe. You still don't know when to give up, do you? I can do this all day. But be warned, this episode will contain detailed plot spoilers and mildly objectionable language. And guru. Whoa! Language! Listener discretion is advised. Gentlemen, you're up. We hope you enjoy the show. Showtime, a-holes! Today we're discussing Eternals, starring Emma Chan, Richard Madden, Kumail Nanjiani, Leah McHugh, Brian Tyree Henry, Lauren Ridloff, with Kit Harrington, with Salma Hayek, and Angelina Jolie, directed by Chloe Chow. This is the now-playing co-host whose sarcasm could save the planet, Arnie. And Stuart. And this is the host who'd make a very cute giraffe, Jacob. Welcome back to Marvel. Another one this year. Is there too much of a good thing between TV and movies? Is this a good thing? I guess that's what we're here to discuss. Seven of anything in one year is a whole lot. This is Marvel number seven. If you count the three TV series plus Venom 2, then yeah, they've really given us a lot of content this year. They're making up for lost time. Yeah, a lot of content, but I feel like we just talked about some superheroes that find out that God's a bastard and you got to destroy him. We just did this, right, on Loki? Yeah, I'm kind of glad we did do that show. I guess a lot of people are glad that we honored our word and, yes, similar concerns. And I got the vibe out of this. Like, I didn't know Neil Gaiman had written this comic book, but I knew it, like, in my soul when I heard about this property. (laughs) This feels like that Sandman shit. I always wanted to read that comic. I would pick it up. It would have these evocative covers and then I just couldn't even understand you know it was for like the grad school comic book reader who could deconstruct myth on a whim like they could understand love hate and you know hope and envy all these characters that were symbols I just could never figure it out Yeah, I've never even finished it. I've gotten about halfway through. You know, if you like your superheroes to save the day through, like, poetry slams and riddles, then yeah, Neil Gaiman (laughs) is the person for you. They are the true heroes, aren't they? (laughs) Mm -hmm. But it's funny you associate this and you thought of Neil Gaiman because this is Jack Kirby. Like, this is his creation, and I think they both like to talk about the gods, but I couldn't think of two creators that have different sensibilities because Kirby, he had just 
left DC where he had done his New Gods saga. Never got to finish it, but, you know, we talked about Darkseid when we did the Snyder Cut and Granny Goodness and all those characters. He wanted to do this big cosmology for superheroes and say, you know, all those other ones are now myths. They're gone. And now we got to have, like, space future gods. And so when he went over to Marvel, he's like, well, I didn't get to finish that, so let me just restart all that here at Marvel (laughs) with the Eternals. And he never got to finish it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even know if Marvel ever wants to finish it. Yeah, so like years later, like there was a miniseries in between, like in 1985. And then, yeah, you had that Neil Gaiman seven issues where it was a very different tone. Like again, Kirby, great, crazy machines that he's drawing. and But it's about the action and all that. And yeah, Gaiman is about Eternals losing their memory and slowly waking up and realizing who they are. And (laughs) very different pacing. I didn't know the Eternals. I consider myself a pretty big Marvel fan, but the cosmic area was never my thing. I mean, I liked it when Galactus tried to eat a planet and all, but the more you got into Nova or some of those characters, like the Infinity Gauntlet saga lost me. Oh, it is not good. Like, do you want the entity of like eternity showing up to fight Thanos as he's like wooing death? Like, (laughs) it is bizarre. And I've said this like with X-Men, when they go into space, that is when I tune out. And yeah, when Marvel, when they want to do this cosmic stuff, some people love this. It's not my thing. Give me Iron Man. Give me Captain America. Give me Spider-Man. I don't care about this cosmic space stuff. I'm look, everyone is someone's favorites. There's someone that loves eternity. But I mean, if you look at the publishing history, they're like on volume five because there's a movie coming out. So of course there's a new run, but they always last like only a few issues. I gave it my all. I tried to see because I have been very vocal about my skepticism towards this movie and my apathy towards this movie going in. Were this movie not being covered by now playing? Did this movie not start with a Marvel logo? I would not be seeing this movie in theaters. If this were a DC movie and we weren't covering it, I wouldn't be seeing it. So I decided I was going to give it my all. I went back and I started reading the Jack Kirby run. And it was okay. It wasn't bad. It was a little obvious, but, you know, it was very 70s comics. I could go with it. Were you able to guess that Ike Harris was really Icarus? I know, some of those names, right? (laughs) Mike Kari is Makari? Mercury? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I figured some of that out. I thought Gaiman came up with all this crap, but okay, this is all... Oh, no, this is Kirby. No, Gaiman is just going off of what... And the thing is... Like, because no one reads Eternals, there's, like, not that much continuity. So the interesting thing is they have really been retconned to kind of be the backbone of the Marvel Universe. And I I was wondering, is this why we're getting an Eternals movie? Because in the comic, so you have the Celestials, they come down to Earth, and there's like, oh, look at these apes. They're probably a good uh, specimen to, to experiment on and maybe get something intelligent. So Celestials operate on apes. It creates deviants, humans, and Eternals. But... Because of that experimentation, humans have, like, this latent gene that could be activated. You get bit by a radioactive spider, maybe you become a Spider-Man. Or maybe at puberty, you uh, pop claws from your fist and you become an X-Men. Like, this was how they explained all these superheroes is because of this tinkering that happened in this little Jack Kirby comic that no one really reads. And I think that's how they're building this movie is that this is the origin of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I think I've heard that in the stuff that I've consumed, that this one will explain it all. It's laying a foundation, a blueprint for everything we've experienced. Well, I also tried some of the Neil Gaiman stuff. I didn't read the comics, but in 2015, Lionsgate was working with Marvel and doing a lot of motion comics, if you remember those. 
Oh, they did motion comics for this? Yeah. <laughs> they did a motion comic of the start of the Game & Run. I felt like Stuart with Face Off. It was an 88-minute movie. It took me five hours to watch. <laughs> Admittedly, it was broken into chapters, even with beginning and end credits on every chapter, and there were 11 chapters, and I found myself needing breaks in between each chapter. It got better as it went. The opening was pretty hard, but I kind of liked the premise. The premise was it's modern day, and most of the Eternals have amnesia, and Ike Harris doesn't know he's Icarus. Yeah, and he wakes up, and you know, there is a current series going on right now written by Karen Gillan, who is another one from Across the Pond, and yeah, it felt more like that game and stuff, like it, very moody, and even though Iron Man shows up, it feels like it's more of a joke, like just to remind you it's in the MCU, but that's not what they're really worried about, though Thanos shows up too. You thought Thanos was dead? We're talking about Thanos again, people. It seems very eggheaded. It seems like there's kind of two kinds of comic book readers. I guess there's a lot of different comic book readers, but I think that there would be some people that just want the action to flash the classic characters. They're not well served by these kinds of things. This is for, again, grad students, like people that have deconstructed myth and history and would really get off on esoteria. Like, I feel like this is for comics for smart people, and I'm not smart enough. Like, this was the challenge every time I try to read a comic book by Neil Gaiman, but it's actually what's making me excited about this movie. Like, okay, Marvel is finally saying we're brave enough to shake up the formula. We're going to go with an outside director, we're going to go with outside characters, and we're going to get into some universe building that goes away from the formula. All of that made me excited. Didn't they do that with Inhumans? Also a Jack Kirby creation. <laughs> you keep bringing up Inhumans. There's nothing about this that felt like that trashy, stupid Medusa hair thing that you <laughs> dragged me to. To put a fine point on it, Arnie, you talked about how if this didn't have the Marvel logo, you wouldn't care. And I was kind of, even if it had the Marvel logo, I'm like, it's Eternals. No one likes Eternals. I don't want to see an Eternals movie. But after Dune, that just we reviewed a couple weeks ago, had such an effect on me. I'm like, wow, I kind of like this slow, ponderous, sometimes boring sci-fi. Like, this is really good. Like, it put me in a better mood because I'm like, yeah, that's kind of what Eternals looks like too. Slow, ponderous, boring. But they did it with Dune. Like, that actually kind of made me excited for this one. Yeah, they do feel like comparable experiences, on the surface at least. Yeah, this is going to be a movie that is not going to put the premium on the action, on the superhero-ness of it all. Let's start with the director, Chloe Chow, who I think is a really outside-the-box choice to lead any superhero movie. Like, her films largely work on working with non-professional actors. I don't know if you saw Nomadland. That one had the confederate of at least they had Francis McDormand. Yeah, but the best part of that stuff was the real people when it was just being a documentary. And like, because you get these weird cadences and like, I really appreciated that there were just real weird people in that film. I did watch that movie. It had been on my to-watch list, even if she wasn't involved with Eternals. It got bumped to the top of the list because she is doing Eternals. And... I watch that and I'm like, why do you pick this person? Now, I didn't realize she was already in pre-production on Eternals before Nomadland. She was working on both films simultaneously, shooting Nomadland, pre-production for Eternals. But nothing in Nomadland made me think, get that person for my next Marvel superhero team. 
again, I had seen her earlier work. If you go see The Writer, that's a movie where she got a, a rodeo cowboy who actually did fall off his horse and break his head and reenact that for my cameras with your actual friends. And the gift of, of why you would get her, I think the reason why she would make sense is if you have these highly symbolic, hard to relate to demigod characters, who better to personalize them and make them real than this director. This is someone who is able to find a lot of naturalism in people that are not actors. Now, of course, this cast is nothing but people that have been working in Hollywood for decades, so she's not really going to be allowed to to play her games. But my hope and expectation was she would bring a much slower-paced and nuanced feel to the superhero genre. It wouldn't feel like a Marvel movie when we watched it, was my expectation. But this isn't what they brought her in for. For, you know, they wanted her to do Black Widow. That's why they held the meeting. <laughs> then when she got in and got to talk to the producers, she said, yeah, I know you want to talk Black Widow, but let's talk Eternals. What's interesting is because I especially that Black Widow movie, I just said, you know what? They bring in these artsy directors to direct a few drama scenes. You know, Shang-Chi, they spent seven months on that bus scene. Like, there's no way that director was there the whole time. Well, Chloe Chow came out. She Maybe she has heard my accusations now playing. I, I'm not saying she's a fan of the show, but she did come out in an article I read and said, like, no, I had input on the action. They pre-vised it all. And then they said, we want you to pre your version and we'll work them together. And, and so, yeah, it sounded like she had much more hands-on, even with the stuff you would not associate with her in this film. And I would say that this is definitely her changing up her style than Marvel saying, let's get us some chow. Like, I really don't feel, in the end, when I watch this, that it reflected much about the writer or Nomadland or, or what I was hoping that she would bring. Another surprise... Angelina Jolie is the most recognizable face. I just naturally assumed, well, she's the leader of this crew. She'll be it'll be her story. She's finally coming back to movies and carrying this. Wow. Did she just need a paycheck? Barely in the film. Her career has really, you know, she's aged and women over 35 have a hard time in Hollywood. But the year the Marvel Cinematic Universe started, she was such a in-demand actress. She was in Wanted, another comic book movie, the same year Robert Downey Jr. armored up for the first time. And now here she is. Is this a cameo? A supporting role? Both her and Salma Hayek feel like the biggest stars and feel wasted. Yeah, Hayek feels even more like a cameo. I, I'm shocked what happens to her in this one. Yeah, but I wouldn't expect to see Selma Hayek in an action movie. Like, this feels like her in Tomb Raider mode. This should be easy for her. And uh, again, I sense a reluctance to participate. I don't know. Maybe they're saving her for sequels or things. But yes, this is definitely, if you came to see the reemergence of Angelina Jolie post-Brad Pitt breakup, this is not Isn't it. that Maleficent? Uh, I never saw that one, so maybe it is. Could be. I mean, that's a huge hit movie that people really enjoy. I feel like she has led movies and directed movies, but here, yeah, I expected her to be a superhero, that biggest name, I've, unless you're a huge Game of Thrones fan. I think Angelina Jolie has the marquee factor, but she is not the star. Yeah, I think Marvel is the star here. I think ultimately Marvel is saying, we have earned the right to experiment here and we're going to take you to some place you wouldn't go. 
that this is not a, a movie that, yes, mass audiences would line up for, but we think we have the clout now to get you to go to a realm that might even seem sacrilegious. I mean, once I really got into the story of all this, I'm like, oh, I bet you some people are not going to appreciate creation myths and what have you. Or stories where you save the day through abortion. Yeah. Can I just suggest that maybe this wasn't the greatest movie for the Happy Meal tie-in that's going on? There's a Happy Meal tie-in? You can get all ten Eternals with your McNuggets and some chalky milk. Huh. And an action figure. There's an action figure line languishing on pegs right now. It just, this does not fit this movie. They tried to apply a cookie-cutter Marvel mold, and I'm just thinking, did they not understand the property they are trying to tie into did they just get pictures of people in costumes and went yes we're marketing it again what i think they're doing is they're trying to tell you it's just like what you love while secretly knowing we're going to get some flack on this we're doing things that we haven't done before and we're challenging our audience in ways that maybe they won't like and what is the expectation on this being a hit? I know that there was lots of grumblings about the trailers. Uh, you, Arnie, in particular, were very vocal in saying this didn't look good. It wasn't looking like something that was exciting you. Are they going to make money on this? I was surprised to find out it did make a good amount. It was, I think, third for the pandemic for its preview night on Thursday. I did go and see this on preview night in IMAX, and it's a huge theater, this IMAX. Probably 500 seats or more, but it felt pretty sparse in there. And then I went back the next night on Friday, and I didn't see it on the big screen because that was a sold-out show almost, and I went and saw it on a regular screen, and that was pretty empty too, so I can't say I had a big crowd experience. I mean, what about your Marvel groups? You run, you run in those crowds. Was there much excitement from those? I loved some of the responses I got. I'm like, so who's seeing it this weekend? They're like, well, I would be if I wasn't doing other things. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, but if this was Endgame, you wouldn't be doing those other things. <laughs> you suddenly, something suddenly came up in your Brady parlance to make it so you're not seeing Eternals in the opening weekend. But I have not seen a great deal of excitement for this brand in my Marvel circles, no. And not only Marvel circles and the critics. I mean, again, with, with Chloe Chow's name on this, the early buzz was this could be the one. This could be the Marvel movie to win an Oscar for Best Picture. And then the critics saw it, and now I'm thinking, oh, this is the worst Marvel movie ever. Like, this has gotten pretty uniformly mixed and negative critical response. So I definitely came into this. I saw it twice, but I came in this with already some hedged expectations that maybe it wasn't going to be Kubrick's 2001 as a Marvel movie. Yeah, I never had those expectations. And I saw the Rotten Tomato scores and, and that, and I heard the buzz around it. And I'm like, yeah, that seems about right for what kind of my impression was based off those trailers. Like, I would love a 2001 Marvel film. I, I wasn't expecting that, though. Well, what did we get? Arnie, why don't you give him a plot? In the beginning, before there was the Big Bang, there were the Celestials. Giant godlike beings that created our universe. There was an enemy to life, however, an alien race called the Deviants. Across the universe, Deviants terrorized planets, killing by the score. To stop the Deviants, the Celestial Erishim sent Eternals, a race of superpowered beings from the planet Olympia. It was in 5000 BC that a group of ten Eternals were sent to Earth to protect humans from the Deviants. 
I always love starting in that year. What a great year to kick off your movies. All my favorite movies are set then. (laughs) You wanted to talk about 2001. Isn't that around the time of the monolith? Yeah, rarely replicated. Just want to point out there, the reason why that movie's special is nobody else has done it. Well, these Eternals were led by Ajax, an Eternal with the superpower to heal, played by Selma Hayek. Her lieutenant is Icarus, who's basically Superman. He can fly, super speed, super strength, lasers out the eyes, etc. No cape. (laughs) Played by Richard Madden. Over the centuries, Icarus fell in love and eventually married fellow Eternal Circe, who has the ability to transform any inanimate matter into another substance, played by Gemma Chan. <laughs> the way she explains it, she can make rocks into ice and water, which, again, feels about as good as Zan and Jaina. <laughs> Form of flower petals. <laughs> Where's Gleek? The Eternals fight the Deviants for 6,500 years. When finally the last of the Deviants are killed, Ajax tells her team to go into the world and explore Earth while they wait for Erisham to send them home. So we jump to present day, where the Eternals have mostly not seen each other for hundreds of years. Cersei and Icarus broke up hundreds of years before, and now Cersei lives in London and teaches at the Natural History Museum. She does live with Sprite, an Eternal forever trapped in the body of an adolescent. Sprite has the power to make illusions, and is played by Liam McHugh. And Cersei has a new boyfriend, a co-worker at the museum named Dane Whitman, played by Kit Harrington. It isn't long into the movie when Sprite and Cersei are attacked by a deviant named Crow, voiced by Bill Skarsgård. They're shocked, of course, as all the deviants were thought to be dead. They're saved from the beast by Icarus, who fights it off but can't kill it as it seems to have Ajax's ability to self-heal. Unsure what to do, Cersei, Sprite, and Icarus go to see Ajax in America, but she's dead, killed by deviants. The magic sphere that allowed Ajax to communicate with Erisham passes into Circe, who sees the god and is told it's almost time, not for the Eternals to go home, but for the destruction of Earth. Or for us to go home, for that matter. <laughs> we got two more hours. I know, I can't believe This is just, they're just warming up. <laughs> I know, my second viewing, I'm like, okay, so that's the one hour mark of a three hour film. See, Celestials aren't eternal. They die and new Celestials must be born. For a new celestial to come into being, it must be fed by the energy of billions of intelligent beings. Cersei learns what Ajax always knew. The Eternals aren't an alien race from Olympia. They're robot-like beings built by Erisham to stop the Deviants. Deviants used to be used to protect life from predators. So, it's like they sent the Deviants to protect the intelligent life from lions and tigers. Or to wipe out dinosaurs. Okay, that too. Although I don't believe the creation museum I saw in Cincinnati where you have humans riding dinosaurs. I don't think the deviants came in and took away their mounts on the Triceratops. Well, that's because that's history and we're discussing fiction with Marvel. (laughs) Okay, good point. But the deviants were to protect human life from predators, but then the deviants figured out what was going on and decided to kill humans themselves to stop the Celestials. So, the Eternals were then sent in to stop the Deviants. This has all happened millions of times, but in between each mission, the Eternals' memories are erased, all save for leader Ajax. Now Earth's population has reached the point where a new Celestial, gestating in the Earth's core, can emerge, though doing so will destroy Earth and, 
of course, all life on it. Icarus suggests they get the whole team back together, kind of like a super-powered Blues Brothers. They span the globe, picking up the other Eternals. They're on a mission from Erisham. That'd been great if they had a giant loudspeaker on top of the Domo. <laughs> I, I'm looking forward to the Domo chase through the mall myself. Oh, it's going to be epic. All those cop cars that are going to crash chasing it. The first Eternal they get is Kingo, an Eternal who can shoot energy from his hands, played by Kumail Nagiani. Kingo has become a Bollywood star, but leaves his filmmaking life to go with the others. He brings along his valet, Karen, to make a video documentary of the events. They then go to see Gilgamesh, the strongest Eternal, played by Don Lee. Gilgamesh has been caring for fellow Eternal Thena, played by Angelina Jolie. Thena suffers from what's called Mad Weary, as is most of the audience. <laughs> and there ain't no cure. <laughs> Mad Weary is when, despite her memory being erased, she remembers the destruction of other worlds and starts to mindlessly attack her fellow Eternals. Thena is also the goddess of war and has the ability to make energy weapons form in her hands. They then go to the Amazon and find reclusive, mind-controlling Eternal Druig, played by Barry Keegan. But there the group is attacked by Deviants and Crow kills Gilgamesh and we see Crow has the ability to absorb the powers and memories of the Eternals he kills. And we see Cersei turn a deviant into a tree, the first time she's been able to transform living matter. Next stop is Chicago for Eternal Fastos, who has the superpower to create machines, played by Brian Tyree Henry. Finally, the six surviving Eternals go back to their spaceship, the Domo, where they find their final member, Super Speedster Makari, played by Lauren Ridloff. The Eternals debate on if they should try to stop the Celestial from being born. Icarus and Kingo think the destruction of Earth is necessary for the continuation of life across the universe. Cersei, Gilgamesh, Thena, Makari, and Fastos think humanity is special and should be saved. But Cersei thinks there's a non-violent solution. She won't commit to killing a Celestial. It's revealed Icarus knew this was the plan all along. Ajax questioned their mission and wanted to save humanity, so Icarus took Ajax to be killed by the Deviants. Icarus goes to protect the Celestial, along with Sprite, who's always loved the Super Eternal. So the Celestial starts to be born, tearing apart the Earth, and Fastos has created unique bracelets that allow Eternals to feed energy into each other, creating what he calls the Unimine. With it, the hope is, using all their combined energy, Druig can put the newborn Celestial to sleep for several thousand years. But they're attacked by Icarus, and it takes their combined effort to fight him. In all of this, Crow appears, declaring the Eternals all evil for the Deviant Genocide, but Thena kills Crow to avenge Gilgamesh. Sprite shows up to stab Cersei in the back, literally, and talks about being mad she's trapped in a teenage body and she can never experience all human life has to offer. And Druig is unable to put the Celestial to sleep. So with no other options, Cersei forms the Unimind with the other Eternals and transforms the baby Celestial to stone, killing it. She then uses her last bit of Unimind energy to make Sprite human so she can grow up, live life, but will eventually die. For his sins, Icarus flies to the sun and commits suicide. The battle done, Cersei, Kingo, and Fastos decide to stay on Earth and resume their faux human lives, while Thena, Makari, and Druig take the Domo to space to find the other Eternals and tell them the truths about their missions. But on Earth, Erisham appears, where he takes Cersei, Kingo, and Fastos, saying he will use their memories to judge if humanity deserved to be spared. 
On the Domo, Thena, Makari, and Druig realize something happened to the Eternals on Earth, and so they're immediately ready to turn around. I think they just left. But they're joined by Star Fox, also known as Eros, played by Harry Styles, who says he knows where the three Earthly Eternals were taken. And on Earth, remember Kit Harrington was in this movie? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's about to tell us about his mysterious ancestry. Yes. His character, Dane, anxiously looks at a magic sword, which he's about to pick up when an off screen voice asks if he's sure he's ready, and credits end. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, thanks for joining us for part one of this review. We'll be back next week where we start discussing it. Yes, let's try not to make an internal podcast, but oof. This is called lore. This is. Always been my struggle with Neil Gaiman, and and I hear you say that this is Jack Kirby, but Gaiman is the giant wall for me. Like, I want to appreciate, I know he's smart, I know people and are friends with people that really respect his work. I won't hold Stardust against him, but, like, it's it's just hard, (laughs) right? It's hard to see characters that are so symbolic, and I think that's my real hope was that Chloe Chow would somehow make them human, and I'm not sure that they'd become that. Yeah, you say these are Kirby creations. Like, Kirby, he pawns off of Shakespeare and uses that to create science fiction gods. But, like, when Darkseid talks, he's like, I am the voice of Holocaust. I am the Tiger Force. Like, that is literature you could, like, absolutely get into right away. Yeah, Gaiman does it, and it's all Shakespeare and poetry, and it is a barrier to many. It's a barrier for me, even though, like like I said, only read about half a Sandman because that's all I could really get into it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, I do feel like this film, there's the Chloe Chow stuff and then there's the Marvel stuff. There, There is the Gaiman stuff and there's the Kirby stuff. Like this is going to try to ride both of those lines. Right. And you know what? That shows ambition. So again, even though I know there's a lot about this that will be a very steep uphill climb, I'm also excited to try something new. Because again, seven Marvel movies in one year, give me something different. Well, here it is. Starting with this scroll. Yeah, are you excited for a scroll that starts in the beginning? I mean, I'm open (laughs) to an opening scroll. I have to just remember this is how Star Wars began. And like Star Wars, they're going to put certain words in all caps so that we know the key terms here celestials deviants eternals and we're specifically told this is before the six singularities also known to us as infinity stones i didn't know what that meant but i actually felt like this prologue was actually not that hard but in the end all they're really saying is erishim is god he created everything then these deviants came to eat intelligent life so he created eternals to protect earthlings that's it That's all you think you need to know here as we kick off and see what looks like a giant Kit Kat bar orbiting the sun, (laughs) ready to launch the Eternals onto the planet. Kit Kat bar? I thought it was the monolith. Well, they'd like for you to think it's the monolith, but I don't know. There's something very deliciously chocolate about that thing. (laughs) Were you just having snacks in the movie or wish you got some? (laughs) Come on, there's Sprite in here. Tell me there's not product placement. There's food all over this thing. You want you want some spittle beer? Mm. Yeah, I think they're going to have trouble selling that at Disney World. Yeah, this film, it's setting itself apart as something different. If this is the cosmology of the Marvel Universe, if this is the mythology, the gods of it, then yeah, in the beginning, like the Bible starts that way, like appropriate way to start. It sets the mood. 
and I'm looking at, as these people, you know, they look like a real fun group, right? Anytime you see tunics, you're like, okay, this is a cult. But they, like, go and this, like, magic calligraphy turns them into Mighty Morphin Power Rangers. And they all have different colored suits and what have you. Okay, this is kind of without spark. But they're trying to tell you early on their sexual chemistry. We do have this moment between Icarus. And I thought she said, I'm sassy. I was like, really? <laughs> okay. But it's Cersei. Yeah, they tell us early on that there's going to be some sex and some loving that's going on between all of these monastic types. Yeah, all these Eternals are hooking up. I just want to call out real quick, I do love the outfits here. I feel like Hollywood costuming for not just superheroes, but all mainstream movies had gotten really stale lately. I feel like the overly patterned and textured cloth outfits had gotten really dull They were used, you know, since Man of Steel and even Star Trek 2009 had them. And here we've got some like leather armor going on with a little bit of wear to it, providing some difference in color. And it looks of a piece. And yet they're not all wearing the same outfits. I imagine it's how we would look to aliens. If we all showed up wearing jeans and a t-shirt, none of us would have the same color jeans or the same t-shirts on, but we'd all look like we're wearing the same weird outfits. And so I like the clothes here. I like the super suits. Uh, I feel like I'm back at Paisley Park and like we're just waiting for Prince to show up. Like it, <laughs> it, like it feels very 80s and rock and roll. Again, what's so weird is you can tell these people are dry and don't have any personality. I mean, they literally were just like activated by a magic gumball. <laughs> but at some point, I guess I'm waiting for their personality to kick in. But it, it's a stretch, right? This is a way to scare a lot of people away. Like start a movie like this. We're in the monolith and people are turning into these characters. And I, I guess it's the action. What they're hoping grabs you is when we finally land on Earth, we get a big battle scene and we, we see what the deviants are. They're dinosaurs. It's funny because you'd expect at the climax, all the Eternals would come together and have a major fight. But that will never happen except here in the beginning. This is where you get to see all 10 Eternals together for the first time. I was watching Jimmy Kimmel and it had Salma Hayek and Kamel Nanjiani. And they were talking about how great it was to work together. And I'm thinking, did they share a scene? (laughs) Might be here at the beginning, but that would be it. Yeah, this is the only time. Well, what I notice is that there's like five Eternals that do the fighting and then the other kind of like the politicians. They come later to bring technology and influence thinking and maybe the fact that one of them is a child means they're not going to give them a fight. But we get the five fighters here and I'm wondering, Jacob, you said it. Like, if there is the idea, they're going to influence human destiny. They have a whole game about how we can't fight on the behalf of humankind, but we can kind of, like, you know, hand them the right weapon or, or change, you know, their powers. We're seeing mutant powers here, right? When we see Icarus, we're seeing Cyclops before he's been born. Like, that eye power is going to become a mutant power. Is it? Yeah, I mean, they could bring that in. The thing with the Eternals, like, they all kind of had the same skill set in the comic but they all kind of end up specializing in something so here i do think they made it streamlined and easier like one is the flash one is superman one's wonder woman like they put it in terms like one can control your mind just terms we can understand and yeah things that we have seen in x-men movies 
and Shang-Chi. I mean, I do think Gilgamesh has the bracelets. Like, that's probably where the Ten Rings came from. I think they're telling us this is the origin for every power. Yeah, what's funny is Fastos, the engineer in the comic, they didn't do it in this, but in the comic, he walks around with a hammer like Thor and shoots beams out of it. Yeah, maybe they thought that would be too obvious, but... <laughs> That's how I'm taking it. Again, this is my approach to this movie is what happens here is going to influence every superhero I've ever seen. They're giving those gifts to everybody. Yeah, but Gilgamesh doesn't have rings. The rings come from Fastos, and they're at the end of the movie, which would be thousands of years after Shang-Chi's dad found the rings. Gilgamesh has energy power gloves. They all just have these energy powers, be it energy out the eyes, energy gloves, Athena has energy swords. Yeah, and that might be something we'll find out at a later time because they have changed what was in the comic where the Celestials created Eternals, humans, and Deviants like all from the same group of apes on Earth. And, you know, here they have changed like who the Deviants are and the Eternals and like this is their first time to Earth. And again, they're influencing. We're jumping a stage. We're going from the Stone Age. There's a little kid that's gutting a fish with like a stone knife. It will be turned into Bronze Age. We're to think that everything we ever accomplished... And this is the sticky nature of these Eternals. They're not going to do it for us, but they kind of are like really whispering in our ear everything that we need to do to advance. They give us some major inventions, like the plow. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure how much we can take personal credit for anything that was done in history. It is very awkward because let's face it, this movie would exist perfectly outside of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, right? We wouldn't have to try to retcon, oh, where were they during Thanos if this was outside? This seems to be one of the most standalone movies in the past five years of Marvel, and yet they have to try to shoehorn it in in some way and try to make it fit. It's trying to shove a square peg into a circular hole. It doesn't always work. We've got to cut off some corners here. But I go with it well enough that, yeah, they're just here to save us from alien deviance. Yeah, I had a lot of questions when those trailers came out. I'm like, really? You guys didn't get involved with Thanos when half the population disappeared? Like, that's the time to maybe break that prime directive of yours. But they're like, no, we could only fight deviance. And yeah, but then we see them interfering with humanity. Here's a bronze knife or something. And here's the plow. And But by the end, it's like, oh, they're just robots who were programmed to do this. I'm like, okay, that's a good enough explanation for me. But like, until that revelation, like, I'm like, I don't really understand. They seem to be very involved in humanity for a group that's not supposed to really get involved. One of the big topics here, though, is evolution. We're going to see humans evolve. We're going to see that the deviants evolve. We're going to see them literally evolve on screen in front of us. One of the things Erisham says later is, I made you guys robots so that you wouldn't evolve. You just are going to do what we say. And yet, aren't we seeing the evolution of robots when they are eventually going to rise up against their creator? You know, they clearly are asking us to think about that because when we jump to modern day London, we have Cersei taking a picture of that knife. It's part of now uh, artifacts that shaped history display and running past a statue of Charles Darwin. I got to say, though, while we're making that jump to the present day, like we get that Marvel logo and I hear these drums kicking in. 
I'm like, this really sounds like Pink Floyd. If this score is just a ripoff of Pink Floyd and it's this good, like, I am buying this score. This is amazing. And then it just ends up being Pink Floyd's time. Like, Yeah, we're jumping to present day, so let's listen to music from the 70s. <laughs> well, but it's called Time. And look, man, uh, great, great album. It is a good album, but it's not present. <laughs> look, what is the most popular songs from the Marvel Universe? They're all from the 70s. James Gunn with his Guardian soundtrack. Led Zeppelin with Ragnarok. Like, that is Marvel. Marvel's bread and butter, like, they know what the hits are. There's some BTS on the soundtrack. You want to bring me to present day, play some BTS, not some Floyd. Harry Styles is entering the Marvel Universe, people. I think they're going to get to contemporary music. I can't wait for Ariana Grande to become, I don't know. Yeah, I know how you love Cardi B and the Fast and Furious <laughs> franchise. <laughs> It'll be great. But I don't understand. Do they teach schools at museums? I know that we had field trips to museums, but this looks like a straight-up classroom that she, like, is somehow wedged within like the artifacts. I thought it was a college the first time I saw the movie. I thought she walked past a statue of Darwin more evolution imagery here. I thought that she was just going to class like at a college. I didn't realize till the second viewing she works at the museum that's exhibiting her knife. And those are not college kids. No, they're high school. Maybe middle. Yeah, it feels weird because we meet her boyfriend, Dane, at this point, too. And he's like, oh, about time you showed up. Like, does he work at the museum? Is he just hanging out at his girlfriend's workplace? Yeah, it was a little confusing. I I took it as a field trip. There's a lot about this movie that feels condensed in confusing ways. And yeah, that's just one small detail. But I'm like, are they both teachers? Are they both museum people? Like, why is there a class here? And then we don't have time to really think about it because all of a sudden there's a global earthquake. And everything's shaking. And that's because they never really follow around to this, but that's because there's this celestial that is just starting to wake up inside the core of the earth. Yeah, it it really did take me some post-viewing thinking, because I'm like, what was that earthquake? Oh, the celestial. It's basically a contraction at a global scale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, and the way they play it off is we see a deviant like rise from the water. So, oh, it, it's the deviants coming back to the surface again. I think that's what they want you to think at first. But yeah, you got to put it together later. Did we ever hear the word crow? I mean, I had to look this up. K-R-O? Nope. But yeah, in the credits, it's there. I only knew crow because... Remember, this movie was supposed to come out in November of 2020, and some of the toys did, and Crow was one of the toys that made it out. So I've known about Crow the Deviant for a full year now, but it's never said in the movie, and it's Bill Skarsgård being horribly underutilized. Yeah. I don't know why there's deviants in this movie, except maybe for the opening prologue, especially this first hour is every... 10 minutes, we got to get to a fight, guys. We got to get to the Jack Kirby, get away from the game in and get more into the Kirby and have a fight. And like, that is why the deviants are in this because you can tell this story without deviants. But who would want to watch it is the thing. I mean, the deviants are the only reason there's action in this movie. But what I'm saying is not every comic book superhero movie needs to have that kind of action. Like, I've I've been asking for something different, so I'm kind of getting annoyed with as many deviant fights as we get during this first hour. I wish it did. I mean, that's my frustration is that was all the hype of this movie is it's going to go places and do things you've never seen before. I think it operates on my brain in different ways. Like, there's less adrenaline that's going to course through me because of this movie. But I don't know. It's not it's almost not weird enough. Oh, I 
I was imagining the 2001 version as they watched yeah, this. Yeah, yeah. I agree. It, it could have gone way stranger. These fights are unfulfilling is the worst part. We open with that big fight of five on whatever, however many deviants there are, and then we get maybe ten minutes with Cersei and her new boyfriend, and another deviant shows up and starts to fight, and we're gonna have these throughout, but they're not good fights they're not exciting fights they're not motivated fights it does feel like we just have an obligatory fight for reasons because we don't trust the marvel audience to pay attention if we're not shooting beams out of our eyes isn't this what the marvel audience wants though you were complaining and and saying that no one was excited for this film in the marvel group like i feel like they knew that was going to happen and so they threw these fights in there for better or worse yeah what we want is motivated fights we want stakes we want conflicts we want fights like civil war on the tarmac where characters have real stakes and we care about who wins or the end of winter soldier there we want those kinds of fights we don't want monsters just rise up every 10 minutes and we smack them down for reasons i mean it kind of worked with the chitauri and avengers did it though i feel about the ending of that film i did not like them there either the chitauri well let's ask what is crow want what we're going to eventually find out is that this is sort of the badass deviant that's going to go and try and suck out all the powers of all the eternals that he is hunting them actually that it looks like in this moment that he's going after dane but in fact it's that he really wants to become a magical little kid again it's really hard to understand what cersei's power is but i guess it's just transforming solid states of matter into liquid and air yeah i mean it's changing anything into anything she can change stone into bronze and They mentioned she could change water into coffee. Yeah, we saw a little quick scene during that earthquake where, like, part of a wall is about to fall on a kid and she just turns it into, what, dust that falls all around them. And a bus flips during this fight and she turns it into rose petals. Oh, that's right. I was really worried the first time. Like, where's the people? Did you turn the people (laughs) into petals? And then finally the bus driver sticks his head out. Yeah, I guess nobody's riding a bus in Camden at this hour. And part of my problem, again... Like, great, you're going to have fights. This is an MCU film. I know there's going to be just big fights going on throughout it. But, like, Icarus shows up, and it's, like, a cool imagery with the laser vision coming out and feels very Superman, Snyder Man of Steel version. And But I don't know these characters, really. I saw them kind of fight at the beginning, but this is all, like, in the dark, and I they don't have their costumes on now. And so I don't have any uh, emotional connection with these characters yet. So it feels like it's supposed to be this big reveal. And I'm like, oh, okay, it's just another one of those not sure which one it is yet. Yeah, I'll just put it out there. I saw this movie twice. It's almost a prerequisite. The first experience was so frustrating, trying to keep track of what was going on, that you really have to, like, first understand what you saw, and then you can figure out how you feel about it on a second watch. But the, the first viewing was entirely just trying to nail down what was happening in front of my eyes. Agreed. That's why I saw it twice as well, is I feel like the first time is comprehension and the second time is determining about enjoyment you guys both watched it twice did you have the impression that like the eternals are the worst kept secret on earth like you see dane here and i guess he knows or maybe he's joking and it just happens to he's hitting the right note that they're superpowered. no no sprite told him everything 
okay, yeah, we saw something at a bar where Sprite was a woman, like, we saw her shapeshift, or she projects illusions. She's a storyteller, and I guess that means she could project things for you to see. She was pulling an illusion that she was an older woman, and because she was bigger, that's why when the guy tries to touch her hand, it just goes through. It's no substance to the illusion. This feels like a graft from, it was the coolest idea in Anne Rice's interview with a vampire, is that it's the part of the uh, of the story that I like. Kirsten Dunst has anguish because she, yeah, gets to live forever, but she never gets to be an adult. And she's always denied adult relationships with all these men that she's around. So yes, Cersei is both her best friend and her competition, because Cersei is an adult woman and men like her. And no one will ever look at this child. And so, again, that's a really interesting conflict to play with. Uh, We don't get a whole lot of time, but I think that romantic triangle comes through once we have Icarus blowing back into the picture. We can see this kid very much is attached to him. And Gemma Chan's character is like, eh, I'm dating a human now. Maybe I don't need you. Well, after 5,000 years, things are bound to grow a little bit boring, but... I don't think in these performances I'm getting what you're talking about. Yes, there's going to be dialogue later on where Kingo is going to show up and say, oh, you're in love with Icarus. And I'm like, she is? Really? You get it in this scene. I mean, again, the fact that she wanted to be seen as an adult and be hit on at a bar, right there, that tells you the conflict of like, I want to grow up and I can't. No, I knew that she wanted to grow up. I didn't get that she was in love with Icarus from this scene. The way she runs and hugs him, she is very, very excited. And I feel like she plays young and that I never feel she's this wizened thousand year old soul that is trapped in a young body. You talk about interview with a vampire. Kirsten Dunst did that amazingly playing a child adult. And here I feel this is kind of a child stuck as a child. She'll have one joke later on where she calls the valet young man, even though he's old by our standards. And despite that joke, I don't really feel like these people have seen lifetimes and they act very much the age of the actors, not the age of wizened gods again chloe chow is great with getting great performances from naturalistic performances from actors and here we have a cast that's uniformly been good in lots of stuff richard madden i watched him in the bodyguard not the whitney houston thing but the netflix show (laughs) no the netflix show i didn't see game of thrones but he was very compelling in that jimmy chan was good in crazy rich asians leah McHugh was good in the lodge like these are good actors why am i not connecting with them it should be the most important thing that's happening it's where the hiccup is i'm watching things happen but i'm not feeling anything about it i'm not feeling them there's a lot of flashbacks throughout this like at one point right after this fight like we'll see eternals fighting deviants again i'm like are they in india i know kamel's in this like are they in india i'm like oh no they're uh in babylon 575 (laughs) bc like okay we've gone way back in time but i think part of that problem is because of the editing is i feel there's some really great character moments but not right at the beginning not when you should be grabbing me in with your characters and telling me who they are and why i should follow them for the next two and a half hours like i feel like those moments come probably too late for most audiences think about nomad land i mean a lot of that movie was people sitting around their trailers telling their personal stories at a campfire like you need slow moments and this movie has no room to breathe there is no chance for people to unwind and tell us who they are they are trapped 
in a Marvel uh, machination that just keeps pushing them forward and they just can never breathe. Yeah, that's why I'm saying cut all the deviant stuff. It doesn't need to be in here. Well, we got to have something in terms of a red herring enemy or we're going to just realize. No, you can just have drama between a group of people. I'm okay with that. Is it okay to sell that as a Marvel movie? I mean, it's a question. If you want to get into art versus commerce, we could get into that, but... No, no, it's about, if I drive a Lexus, I want luxury. You know, if I see a Marvel movie, I want some action. You have expectations based on brand name. I've read enough comics to know that it's not always about the action, and and what the MCU has provided is what the masses think about comics. That's just not necessarily true. You're right. That may not make a great Marvel movie, but hey, if this had been on Disney Plus as a show and had more time to breathe, yes, I think that that we could be doing all of this stuff. But because we only have two hours and 40 minutes instead of six hours and 40 minutes, there is no time for you to be human. We are all robots racing through this. I agree completely in that I feel Marvel is making mistakes as to what should be a TV show and what should be a movie. Oh, yeah. Falcon and Winter Soldier should have been on the big screen, a great action-filled movie, and this cut half the Eternals or put it on the small screen where we can have an hour with each Eternal. Yeah. There's too many characters shoved in here, and it was on the second viewing that I realized that while these have character... Each of them is a character. So few of them have arcs. They are just standing around, and that is bad writing and bad drama. I don't know if they're standing around. There's no time. They've got to rush off. All of a sudden, they've all got to get together. Like, for reasons, they decide that they need to... I guess the earthquake is what's motivated. Is it the Deviant or the earthquake that has these three deciding they need to go find Ajax? And reminisce on Babylon. It's the fact that the Deviant is attacking them now. Deviants always attacked humans. This is a new thing. So yeah, we got to put the team back together. It's not put the team back together yet. It's just go see our leader. Go see Ajax. Go find Selma Hayek. Right. But before we get there, we're reflecting on the last time every... No, that's not even true. No, we have so many damn flashbacks. And I understand they have been on Earth for so long. We want to see them throughout history. And yet, this Babylonian fight, it exists to tell us Ajax knew something. If you watch it a second time, you get from this one when she communes with Arishem. It tells us that she knew what the plan was and that Icarus knew everything she knows, but the others didn't. That's what's in here, but at the time, especially on a first watch, this feels like, hey, need another action scene, we're gonna kill some more deviants. This feels like the moment where she should be setting them free. It will actually be in South America a thousand years later when the conquistadors are killing the Aztecs that she'll be like, we've killed all the deviants. But I feel like Babylon should be the last time that this team was a team and they go their way. And in fact, I hear some lip service. Help me out with this. Because again, the, the timeline is fragmented. It's hard to know when people knew what. But you're right. Ajax knows... She's been conferring with her boss, and she knows that there is a baby growing inside planet Earth that's going to hatch and kill everyone at some point. I thought I heard at some point in this movie that Icarus also found out at this time in Babylon. He found out beforehand. She had confided in him at some point in time. I thought he said Babylon, which again, what we're going to find out is that when he found that out... That was what made him pull away from having a relationship with Cersei. He did. He couldn't live with the lie. No, he got married to Cersei after this. 
This is why I'm very confused. That seems contradictory. No, here he knows the plan, and yet Ajak is saying, just because you know shouldn't prevent you from having a life. Go to her. Feel free to fall in love with her, even though everybody's mind is going to get wiped. Go ahead. Even though all humans are going to die, we've got hundreds of years. Go get some in the time. Which confused me is that she'd already told Dane that she and Icarus had dated for 5,000 years. And I'm like, well, this is only 700 years ago. So were they dating before this? No, no, this is Babylon. This is 575 BC. Okay, yeah, that's, okay, 2,500 years ago, but not 5,000 years ago, which is what she said they dated for. I don't know how long they were in the Kit Kat bar watching Earth. Like, maybe that was considered <laughs> dating. There is so much about this that, again, I hear things said, and I can't connect the timeline. Like, okay, you're making it hard for me, but I should be rewarded when I exert the effort. Why does he leave her then? I see that, okay, I'm going to go and have Marvel's first sex scene, a very perfunctory boink in the <laughs> rock. F- I mean, like, couldn't she make that softer? That's her whole power is to, like, turn rocks into things. How about a bed? Like, this looks painful. <laughs> well, and also, this sex scene is about as risque as a Days of Our Lives episode. Mm-hmm. And I'm sorry, everybody forgets the Hulk scene where Bruce Banner and Liv Tyler almost had sex, but then his pulse got too hot and he almost hulked out, but I felt like that scene was every bit as hot as this scene. It's not a hot scene. I think this might be Chloe Chow trying to make them relatable. I mean, if you're having these kinds of characters, what are we to like about them? How are we to identify with them? They need to be like us. I mean, if you think about Greek myth, what the common people must have liked about those was that it was gossipy. It felt like the rich and famous are just as screwed up as we are when you find out what's going on in Mount Olympus. So these gods should be having all kinds of interpersonal problems and what have you. But tell me, please, if you can. So he's committing to her knowing that it's all going to end at some point why does he leave her why does he fly away a thousand years later yeah that is really really unclear what i get from it is because that's when ajax says mission's over go out explore the world and now that the mission is over he realizes that the destruction of earth is imminent that's what i guess out of this i'm i'm really projecting here Imminent meaning in 500 years. Okay, but yes, all right, I'll go with that. Yeesh. But really unclean and unclear, and I'm working really hard. I mean, when you've lived this long, 500 years is not a lot of time to sow your wild oats before the end of the world. I I feel like they could do a whole lot more to help us if they really wanted to. But I do think it's part of the fun, if that's the right word, I don't think it is, of this movie that we jump around in time and that we see, you know, this is one of the seven wonders of the original world, you know, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. I don't think I've ever seen it produced on film before. And it is a really cool action scene and set, CGI though it may be. We are learning a little bit about some of these other ones. Help me out with Makari. I mean, please, help me out with Makari. <laughs> Why? She, she's not in most of the film. She's just hanging out in the domo, I guess. Her one bit of business is that she's trying to get trinkets so that she can barter for a mythical emerald tablet. Uh-huh. And later on, she'll have the tablet, but it does nothing. Yeah, the punchline is that it's an iPad. No, it's a stone tablet made of emeralds. Is it? Later on, they're going to mention you don't know what an iPad is, but... So, no, she's just searching for some relic, and she gets the relic, and it's all pointless, and... 
I thought the joke was, maybe I'm wrong, but I thought what they were saying is she's the one that invented the iPad. Sorry, Steve Jobs. Nope. But all these people are creating the things, sometimes not historically in the year. I think it's just Fastos that's creating yeah. stuff because he wants to release the steam engine just a thousand years after the wheel was invented, but that's too much technology for us. Yeah, my problems with Makari go much bigger. I mean, she doesn't do anything. She's deaf, but... That doesn't really cause any problem because she's able to hear vibration or feel vibrations. And when people talk behind her back, she knows exactly what they've said, which makes me wonder why people bother signing to her because she can understand what they're saying, even if they're not speaking towards her and she's not looking at them. And apparently she invented ALS because... 5,000 years BC, before there even was an English, she's going to be signing an American Sign Language. So yeah, there's a lot about her that doesn't make sense and isn't fleshed out. In the end, what you've got, Makari can run fast. She's not a tech person. She's the Flash. She's not <laughs> creating things. She runs fast, which, because Icarus can do everything, it makes all the rest of them feel less special, right? Well, again, there are five fighters. She's one of the five fighters. And then there's the politicians. And so, yeah, Fastos is going to give gifts of technology. Sprite is the storyteller that is going to use fireworks to tell the story of Gilgamesh or what have you and give us the myths. Again, this is all the game and stuff about where do we get our creation stories? Where do all our fables come from? It, it actually, I, I hate to break this to you, it is... Kirby, like one of the things, the crazy things, and maybe you remember this, Arnie, from reading that original run, is like the deviants take over all the humans on the Earth, so they have to bring out this god machine to destroy them, and it causes a flood, and they're like, oh man, we just wiped out all humanity. Oh wait, look, there's a wooden boat with some humans and one of every, <laughs> and two of every species. Like, that's how we got <laughs> Noah and the Ark. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, Kirby was interested in explaining, yeah, our myth through science fiction and technology. I think that that's part of what the strategically this was about to be. It was like, where do we get all of the things that we consider culture? And these are the people that at least had an influence on it if they didn't actually rig it. Again, that's what I really can't figure out is how much they are trying to control us and how much they're just trying to give us a, a gentle push and allow us to be self-sufficient. Yeah, my take is the Celestials have all these Eternals like competing. You can make the best intelligent life. Because it's really just about getting that intellect up because that's what baby celestial feeds off of Mm. in the womb. I have to ask, is like 10 smart people and then the rest of humanity enough? Uh, They talk about intelligent beings and looking around at our earth and the way that we treat each other as humans and things. I don't know that every human qualifies as intelligent. I agree. It won't be done by population numbers alone. There's there's a lot of stupid people out there. So, yes, but I get the point that the more that we learn, we're ready. We're fraught for it. It gets said eventually they were ready to get us five years ago. It's only because Thanos took half of the population away that it didn't happen then. Yeah, they they keep saying present day, but present day is like 2024, isn't it? In the Marvel Universe, they're ahead of us now, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're still ahead of us. 2024 is a hell of a busy year in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There's a Marvel Cinematic Universe wiki that has it broken into months and days, and they haven't added Eternals in there yet, but 
According to Screen Rant, this is summer of 2024, taking place about the same time as Spider-Man Far From Home, which is after Falcon and Winter Soldier and after Shang-Chi, and that Marvel wiki goes into exactly which months and which days, but it's a hell of a busy year. But yeah, it goes back to Thanos was right, yes? You think Thanos was trying to save Earth by getting rid of half the population so Celestial Baby can't be born? No, but they've turned Kirby and Gaiman into a message about climate change, right? Because we have too many people, the Earth is going to change, and then the Earth is going to die, and we're all killing ourselves because there's too many of us. I mean, I felt like that's Thanos was a response to climate change in a genocidal way. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, except he was a genocidal about it. <laughs> I think there's something deeper than ecology. I think that if you think about life in the universe, we're only alive because something else has died. We ate animals or we ate plants, but we're subsisting on matter that used to be alive that we took. And so who has the right to live is sort of the message. Yeah, and you get this scene, another flashback, but it's it's the first scene that really, like, I'm like, okay, this movie's all right so far, but this scene I loved is when we see the conquistadors, you know, attacking the natives, and Druig wants to step in, and like, no, we can't do this, and he's like, you know, how many thousands of years of war have they watched? Like, I feel like these are gods, so they're not going to be 100% relatable, but I do think that, like, Alan Moore, he did a run, well, it's called Marvel Man, wasn't with Marvel, and then it had to get changed to Miracle Man, but, like, like, what if superheroes were scary? What if their powers made them unrelatable? This meta commentary, like, has one of the most scariest moments I've read in comics where Miracle Man has a baby with a human, and, like, that baby is horrifying because it's got all the intelligence and powers of a superhero and don't want to hang out with Mama. So, yeah, you get this scene with Druig, like, he wants to get involved, and, like, I'm feeling him. You're mentioning Alan Moore, and I was thinking about Watchmen watching this as yeah. well. I mean, it again... This is not a comic book movie for kids. Like, I mean, I feel like this is where you use the term graphic novel and not comic. If you haven't had big thoughts on existence and where we come from, I don't know how much of this is really going to make any sense. You have to have had that cognitive level. You had to at least be a teenager, I think. Children won't get this. Yeah, I don't think kids will appreciate a reflection on if God should get involved with human affairs. Like, people wonder, like, why? My mom got cancer. Why didn't get God involved? Like, the World War II, why didn't God come down and wipe out all the Nazis? Like, this is going to get to that, but it's a Marvel movie, too. Yeah, and that's its struggle, right? That's what I see it having such a difficult time with. And it's got to do it in movie format. Again, we've got to follow this act structure. I think we finally get to act one at like 30 minutes of the movie. It's Ajax is dead. Suddenly this is a murder mystery. And when you see it a second time, you will see that it is Icarus who quickly says, oh, the deviant killed her. Like they're trying to disguise the fact. And I'll admit, I didn't guess he's the one that really killed her. I thought, this was my theory, because we find out that the Deviant can absorb powers, and I'm like, oh, once we get the reveal of what Erishim is up to, I'm like, oh, Ajax, she wants to take over this Deviant and then absorb all the other powers to, like, fight Erishim. Like, I thought this was some master plot, because, like, some Hayek, like, she's not going to be out in 30 minutes into the film, like, she's got to <laughs> keep coming back, right? And. I knew at this moment it was Icarus, and the reason is I watched The Boys, and Icarus is reminding me <laughs> so much of Homelander. Homelander. So many yeah. of the same powers, somewhat the same 
attitude, and yet we're gonna find out in The Boys much quicker than in this movie. Homelander's a real jerk who, he may have the greater good in mind, but he also has his own good in mind and is going to fight against a lot of his fellow supers. And so here, I'm like, okay, I don't know what's going on, but Icarus is in on it. There's a lot of characters, so if you do watch him, and I only did the second time, you will see that he's hanging back and watching how everyone else is processing that and looking pretty pissed when anyone is like saying, you know, I, I don't like what the Celestials have going here. He is telegraphing that he is the bad guy, but I don't think you notice it because of, of how crowded this movie is with storylines and characters. But good on you for catching it, Arnie. I, I do think what's more significant in this moment is that we see the baton, or in this case, the gumball gets passed. Cersei <laughs> is now the leader and that's sort of a he was supposed to be the leader right it gets said and sprite is certainly defending the idea that he's the most powerful he should be next in line why didn't he get it that's another clue that tells you because selma hayek knows he killed her and doesn't want him to have all the marbles but selma hayek is dead and so when they say ajak chose you cersei i'm like how did she choose anybody? I thought maybe it was Arishim doing the choosing, but... It's whoever gets the gold ball. Yeah, but it's not like Selma Hayek was alive to choose, I give you the gold ball. Maybe. I think she put it in her will, and it knew who to go to based yeah. on that will. <laughs> I, I think there's very loose ideas about death and birth and all of that, and she still had the active choice to be able to say who secedes her, even in being a corpse lying in the backyard of her South Dakota farm. What's funny is they're called Eternals, but they die a lot in this movie. In the game and motion comic I saw, when they die, they actually just go back to the factory and are rebuilt and come back. So I'm not considering anybody dead dead, just because I have that comic knowledge. Yeah, I mean, we're told that in this movie, that their consciousness goes back to the source, it's very Matrix, and they could be rebooted. Yeah, I agree. I think every actor here could be coming back for a sequel. No one dies because of that out that they've given themselves here. But again, another way that he's trying to cover his tracks is now that Cersei is starting to, like, she's just starting to get online with Arishim and find out what's going on. And he, like, grabs her and is like, hey, how are you? Like, let me let me stop this from happening. He puts into the idea that maybe she's not having this cosmic connection. Maybe she has, and God help Help me pronouncing this. Mad Weirin? Mad Weary. Okay, Mad Weary. I the way that it's spelled is not how it sounds. <laughs> Mad Weary like with uh, yeah, there's apostrophes and capital letters where there shouldn't be. Whatever this is. No, but it's the way it's pronounced really sounds like me in this movie. Mad Weary. Yes. You're right. I'm just going to go with Mad Weary. It's basically eternal dementia, or at least that's how it's sold. Maybe you're just crazy and everything that this guy is about to tell you about his master plan is just your nutso mind and don't be mad at me that I know that it's true. Like, this is a man that's basically trying to distract his friends so that Erishim is allowed to go forward with his seven-day plan of hatching a successor. My biggest question is, why doesn't Erishim just shut the hell up? She's going to finally be able to communicate with them, and he's just going to say the whole plan, like, yeah, this is what we're doing. He expects her to behave. I think that he expects loyalty. Yeah, here's the plan. You're the leader. Certainly, Ajak knew and wasn't starting a coup. What gets said, and it's really late, and it's all 
all dialogue, but she knew for all these centuries, since Babylon at least, she knew this was going to happen. Long before Babylon, she's the one who never had her memory wiped. She's done this millions of times. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, they all have, because we'll find that out through Angelina Jolie's character. I didn't get that she never had her memory wiped. Yeah, I thought they always had to get that wiped. Not Ajak. In Babylon, Erisham tells Ajak she's doing better than any other group of Eternals. And that was when she starts trying to convince Erisham to let humans live. So she always knew, and she started to change her mind around Babylon, which, Stuart, if you got it, is when she told Icarus, and it was that confiding in him that would eventually get her killed, that placing trust in the wrong person. So she knew what they came here to do, and what you have to believe is that we humans are so special that despite having caused the genocide of hundreds of thousands or millions of species, because that's the natural order of things. They say the galaxy is energy, death and renewal, and so what we have here is death coming, but the death of Earth is going to bring on a lot of new species and life throughout the entire galaxy, and we're to go with that, but Ajak fell in love with humans so much, she started to resist Erishim, that this is going to be her breaking point. There is some lip service to reversing the snap, but I thought she had made her decision way before, like, Thanos got involved, but maybe that was it, like, that refought back. They say that, but then if you go back to Babylon and 585 BC or whenever it was, she was trying to convince Erishem back then to spare us, and I don't know that Thanos was a glimmer in his daddy's eye at that point. He certainly hadn't snapped. Yeah, yeah, I thought that what I heard her say was, I felt like after I watched the snap happen, what it was like to lose them, and I don't want that to happen now. And now that I know that we got seven days, that earthquake was the kickoff, she knows all the signs, we got a week to solve this problem, I'm not going to let it go forward as it has before. All of this, again, comes way later in the picture, but trying to understand motivations in these moments is helpful. I'm trying to understand why, if she's done this millions of times, why this one is special. Yeah, trying to figure out the motivation, this is why I had to see it the second time, because it is very unclear. Well, let's just talk about Mad Weary is. Again, he's gaslighting her by saying, no, you got what Angelina Jolie got back when we were fighting Conquistador. Yeah, another scene that I really liked. Again, because these aren't humans. These are stories about gods. This is like Shakespeare talking about King Lear and things that I'll never really relate to, but they're supposed to be higher than us, so let's watch their tragedy or whatnot. And so, yeah, this is before we know what she's actually remembering, but I'm like, oh, this is cool. Just like 7,000 years of thoughts are weighing her down and driving her crazy. Well, we'll find out it's actually probably like millions of years and reboot after reboot after reboot of universes on her mind. But yeah, whenever they could give these characters something some kind of internal conflict like Druig or Athena here, I really get into this film. I agree. I like the concept that our memories could weigh us down. At a certain point, we fragment. If we stay alive too long, like we can't handle it from a cognitive standpoint. It's not our bodies falling apart and getting wrinkles and all of that. And of course, it's a way of introducing the audience to the idea of memory wipes. The way they're going to help her is to just like go take her some way that Ajax can just take her to probably the factory and just have her reset to, you know, 
factory calibration, is she still her? I mean, that's the interesting philosophical debate. Are we the sum of our experiences and memories, or are we some kind of soul that no matter what happens to us, no matter, you know, what we've experienced, we're still this thing? It's a good theological concept to contemplate and well-dramatized by this conflict. It is. I wish there was more to it. I mean, that could be an entire movie is discussing... Episode! Yes. Of the show. Yes, the show that I wish this were. But unfortunately, this is Angelina Jolie's entire point of being in this movie, and it's perfunctory at best. Yeah, it gives us some action. It's not very satisfying to watch her attack her friends, but I guess, you know, she's got skills. I'll say that about Jolie is I feel like she's limber, and if these are stunt doubles, they've seamlessly put them in with her, and I feel like, again, she could carry this movie if this movie wanted her to be the leader or to trim down some characters. The way that they leave it at the end, she might have a much bigger part in a sequel. Yeah, internal conflict with this group, drama, that's good. Like, fighting deviants, I don't really care, but yeah, I'm into this fight i do feel like they are scared to make angelina the star because they want to appeal to a younger audience but i think she is the one doing those moves i mean let's keep in mind she was the tomb raider and they didn't have the face pasting technology back then that they have today and it's always been part of her myth like that she slept with knives and like cutlery and like you know cut herself drank billy bob's blood (laughs) yeah drank her own blood and other people's blood so the fact that she's running around stabbing people she loves feels very on point with (laughs) Angelina Jolie herself. (laughs) And the fact that she's hanging around with this multinational crew makes me feel like I've just gone home with her. This is all her kids. (laughs) Yes. Right. Yes, exactly. Now her kids, a family reunion, as it were, with Angelina Jolie. But again, maybe I'm only focusing on her because she is such a big star and I'm wanting to find a center to this. It's really hard to see this as the ensemble. Is it too many characters or not enough time to let each character reveal themselves? Uh, Maybe both. Yeah, because she's going to end up, they're not going to wipe her mind. Gilgamesh is going to take care of her. He's going to take her in and and watch over because he's super strong. So I guess she can't really hurt him anyway. And plus, these Eternals just love hooking up with each other. Like, (laughs) Druig's going to have a love interest. You know, Circe and Icarus, now Thena and Gilgamesh. But I don't feel like we really get much. Well, well, we learn a little bit about Gilgamesh. I mean, he loves Thena. That's basically it. But he doesn't have much of a character. I can't tell if Gilgamesh and Thena hooked up. I kind of get the feeling that maybe Gilgamesh is crushing on Thena, but I don't really get like that it's reciprocal and he almost takes on a parenting role here. Yeah, it's caregiver. And the way she's crying that she's so grateful to him and he later on it's going to be said he does it because you care for the things you love. That's going to be the reason why they save humans is they love humans and you protect the things you love. He's protecting her, but it does feel more like a puppy dog devotion than anything else. It's hard to know. Again, this is where the pilot episode would end. When Ajax turns to everybody and she can sense that, like, things are falling apart. And, by the way, we killed every deviant on the planet. There's no more. I don't know how she knows that. Like, how were they tracking that? Is that a mystical, like, I just feel that there's no more left? Because we'll find out there's some that are frozen in ice somewhere. There's a map 
that they're pulling up that shows a circle around Central America and says this is where the last of them are. I'm going to look to Fastos to say he did it. Okay, that makes sense. So they had a tracker, and there's no blips on the tracker. So the end of the episode of the first part of this is go be who you want to be. You've spent all of your time going and following the laws of this man you've never seen. Now you can follow your own heart. That can be really hard for people all of a sudden to like put their own desires ahead of what expectation and duty, you know, it's like when people retire, well, I don't know what to do with myself unless I have a boss, I don't know where to go. And so, yeah, it would be neat to spend each consecutive episode seeing each person wrestle with that identity crisis. Obviously, the most humorous is they're going to give it to Kamal because, you know, that's the comedian here. I knew he was going to be a Bollywood star. I knew that that was going to be where he went from pre-release materials. And I went into this movie and I said, I have one demand. I better get a Bollywood dance number. Yeah. And I do. <laughs> I am so happy during this scene. I think they had to put it in there so they could release it in India. You have to have a dance number in those movies, I think. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, they do have a standard of three hours long. Got that. <laughs> this movie's got that. And yeah, one dance sequence. So here it is. And it is good. I like it. I'm having fun during the dance sequence. And I got to say, Camille got in shape for this. He looks unrecognizable. His face transformed. He got ripped. He's huge. Yeah, but his face transformed. It's not just his body. He looks like a different person. Yes, I agree. And I just want to put it out there. If you watch those Bollywood musicals, a lot of the guys are jacked. Like, that is the expectation yeah. of the male. It's very macho. And whether he did it for character or for his own reasons, yes, it's very funny to see him like become a narcissist. Essentially, I'm just going to celebrate myself, cement my identity in movies, a relatively new technology, and every couple of years, I'll just pretend I'm now my son or my grandson and just keep this going for 100 years. Kingo does feel like MCU fans, we know what you like. Here's that character. Here's the one that's going to be funny and have quips. Here's your Tony Stark, your Peter Parker. Like, everyone else is so self-serious. Yeah, you have to have this jokester come in to lighten the mood, and he definitely plays that role. Thank God he does. He and Gilgamesh are my two favorite characters, and they're both the ones that have some jokes around them. Gilgamesh? Wow, really? Yeah, what jokes did he have? I don't remember jokes with him. Well, they put him in a baby outfit, and the fact that he's this big, tough guy, and yet he's the cook who carefully chews every kernel of corn for the beer. I like those two the most, and the valet that Kingo brings along to document everything. These are my favorite characters in the movie and all of them feel very sidelined. Well, this is the important thing about going to at each station to see what people became is what do human beings mean to them? Why will they side ultimately with the celestial idea that they are fodder for greater life to be born or say we have to protect these very special people? Yeah, he has this the comparison he's even made to like, I'm like Batman's Alfred. Like I follow this guy around and film his documentaries and compliment him and yeah a, a joyful human being here but what's interesting i think kingo is still willing to say at the end of the day i think 
through the whole movie. Like, he stands out from the climax. He stands down and says, nope, if this is what Ershim asks, I'm with him. And so that means that I will sacrifice my butler. Maybe that's not surprising, given how conceited and vain he's become. But yeah, so narcissistic, he's willing to sacrifice humanity. And I got to say that friends from college joke, that's ragged on a rock, right? They just knew that the friends from work thing had played so well. It's a weird line that they kept using again. I'm like, did they prepare in advance to say, if we ever come back together, just tell other people that I'm a friend from college? It's odd. I mean, it's the thing that makes, yeah. I mean, how how else do you explain how I know all these people strewn throughout the world? Yeah, I, how you know someone that's Indian and someone that's Asian, like very diverse group, someone that's deaf, though. She's just hanging out on the ship. She, they're never going to find her till the very end. But yeah, they get Kingo, and then they do head over to Gilgamesh and Thena. But the, you know what? Sprite says something on the airplane ride over that I just, I don't know if you guys had any thoughts on it. She's really mad at Kingo because he abandoned her in Macedonia. Macedonia, keep in mind, was the opening into the Bronze Age scene. I don't remember seeing anything that happened there. Is that a cut scene? No, I don't think it's a cut scene. I think we're just told in the intervening years, he was taking care of her or hanging out with her, and he got tired, he says, of moving every five years because you have to do that because people freak out that your child is never aging. And so every five years, we have to go someplace else and establish a new yeah. identity. Oh. I got bored of that, so I ditched you. Okay. It was to, yeah, emphasize that angst she has for being trapped in this child's body. He played the parent role and then decided he didn't want to do that anymore. And maybe she even had a crush on him. Who knows? But it's interesting. He will adopt that at the end. He will go back into that role. He's the one that's putting her into boarding school at the end. So, okay. I was having trouble tracking that. Yeah, I don't think it was ever filmed. God knows that they filmed enough for this. I don't know that they'd filmed that scene. It just reference it in dialogue. And then what happened is Cersei got saddled with her. Cersei now is the parent figure. Yeah, and again, that on one hand, like, they would really click. But on the other hand, how painful to always watch this woman steal your boyfriend. And here she is even now. It looks like on the plane that it's starting to heat up with Icarus, that they're looking at whatever that phone app is that makes you look old. And they think that's such a great thing because they never will be that gray or wrinkly. Yeah, it's just like a Snapchat filter. But what are you thinking? Is she going to go back with Icarus or is she going to, I mean, that romantic triangle? I guess we've kind of forgotten about Dane. Yeah, are you thinking about Dane at this point? <laughs> it's so rough for me, this romantic triangle, because if she's with someone for 5,000 years, you've got to believe that's a soulmate of sorts. And anything else that's going to last a human lifespan can be considered nothing more than a fling. And let's face it, he's just the rebound guy, right? I mean, after a 5,000-year relationship. Any Game of Thrones actor will do. How can you form a connection with a human life that can even come close to a connection of 5,000 years? But she actually is going to say in dialogue, I just decided it was time to move on. And that's it. That's all we're going to get. No, again, I think when we look at each individual stories, we need to look at how they've fallen in love with humanity. Because ultimately, that is the thing that they wrestle with. We can't sacrifice humans for the greater good of the universe. Yes, we're told that everything's going to die. Everything, the universe, will die if this celestial is not hatched. But humans, we just love them too much. We have a bias or a blind spot when it comes to them. And so, yeah, Kingo is willing to sacrifice his valet, but 
Gilgamesh, I guess because he's had to take care of Thena, uh, they've kind of lived in the outback. They're not really connected to people. I think that that story doesn't play out when we get to... They've killed a deviant. Uh, that's the one thing that when the plane arrives, they realize that Gilgamesh has already handled the deviant that was coming to suck their powers, and now he's serving them spittle beer and some blueberry pie. I, oh, I thought that was a meat pie he was cooking that he drops, and I was so upset because, man, I miss meat pies. Those are good. Oh, that makes sense. Okay, yeah, maybe it was meat. I don't know. And this is where we're going to get yet another call out. Hey, remember we're in the Marvel Universe? This is a scene that's played for laughs in the trailer and barely exists here where they're like, who's going to lead the Avengers? Kingo makes some mention. Who is he talking about? Someone used to follow him. I think he means in social media. Thor. He says Thor used to follow me around with his hammer when he was a kid. Yeah. And now he won't return my calls. Okay. All right. Yeah, again, there are moments that I feel like they, guys, guys, this is an MCU movie. <laughs> this is what the fans are going to expect. We got to put something in there. We got to drop the name of some superhero that they're going to recognize. But again, I bet you there's a lot of Easter eggs about bestowing powers. And I don't know, is there something about Kingo's power that feels Thor-like? No. I, maybe. And, and Thor is as guardian. It's not like... I agree. That's where it gets really confusing. I'm like, if they've only been on Earth this whole time, why would he know Thor? Well, because Thor came to Midgard all the time. That Remember, that's how the Norse knew about them. Yeah. They were the Norse gods because they'd come to Earth and battle the frost giants away from Earth. Apparently, the Eternals watched that happen, and because <laughs> frost giants weren't deviants, did nothing. No, I don't remember that, because... I don't go back to those. You're saying it like this is an obligatory Marvel call-out just to make people feel like they haven't been cheated. But I, I do think, on some level, they're trying to tell us how it all started. Not just for humanity, but for every superhero. I think that we, we are to credit the Eternals as the original superheroes. Yeah, the way it plays out in the comics is that they are the inspirations for, like, the Greek gods. Like, you could tell from their names, and they actually lived on Earth up on Mount Olympus, because that's where the Eternals stayed. And did they live on Mount Olympus, or did they come from the planet Olympus? Same diff. In Kirby's comic, Celestials experiment on an ape, and it makes all three races, humans, deviants, and Eternals. So they all lived on Earth originally. Oh, okay, in the comic, not in this movie. I thought that since they came from a planet Olympus in this movie, that they, in the myth, made Mount Olympus and Icarus could fly and... Yeah, the joke is made that Sprite was the one that made up the Icarus myth just because she probably wanted to razz the guy she was crushing on and saying that his wings melted and he fell when, in fact, she really wanted to be with him. So again, they have some of that here, but maybe not enough for you to really understand the influence, what these people have done, how they've contributed. Other than giving them a bronze knife, I really don't know how they got us. Again, I thought they made the iPad. Like, I... I think they did. They gave us the plow, the steam engine. We'll find out that they gave us nuclear weapons. Yeah, but that was the last, remember? We'll get there, but after Hiroshima, Fasto stopped giving us things, so... I think we still have to give Al Gore the credit for creating the internet, not the Eternals. All right, so let's just wrap it up here in Australia, because this is the moment where Cersei finally does make connection with Aramesh, and we get the full data dump of what the plan is. And this is where I wish it was less of a Marvel movie, more of that 2001, because 
I believe it's Gilgamesh tells Circe's, oh, you just got to listen. And then Aramish will talk to you. And then she just goes outside and like sits down and listens. Give me some real trippy, like visual, like she's going through dimensions of time and space to communicate. It just happens very easily in this. And then, yeah, it's just a data dump. It's like, hey, let me just tell you what's going to happen in seven days because I guess you're the leader now, so you should know. Well, you know what? I took Because she's by a tree. Now, they're in Australia, so it's not a banyan tree. But I was thinking about Buddha. You know, that was how he achieved enlightenment was he just stopped eating and meditated and under a tree and it just eventually happened. He just transcended. I mean, I think that's called like hunger pains, but he transcended his body <laughs> and understood his philosophy. I guess maybe again, do I need to have like a theological, like master's degree level understanding of, you know, our creation myths in order to get it? Am I missing stuff that is really rich and deep? Maybe. But it does feel really easy. I agree with you, Jacob. Like suddenly she's just like, okay, and now I got it all. And that I'm like, well, that feels cheap. Yeah, I thought that was going to be like a big part of this movie, learning how to listen and communicate with Aravish. But no, literally the next scene, she's just talking to him. Mm-hmm. And so basically, I do like this. I mean, like basically we need to think of like our planet as a egg and it's been seeded a long time ago and we got this little baby inside of us. Like that, all of that imagery, the sexual reproduction, it's very funny to think about that we're going to just hatch a god. Yeah, every billion years a celestial hatches. And- mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, Tiamat. I don't know where, again, these names are really, I didn't get that until the second viewing, but his name is Tiamat. Somehow they're on first name basis with the baby god. Uh, Is Tiamat important in some way? I mean, are we supposed to know Tiamat? Well, I mean, if you've read Eternal Comics, you would know him. I believe he was introduced by Gaiman. He's called the Dreamer Celestial. And again, the the stuff about them being born out of Earth's, I couldn't find any record of that in the comics I read. So I think that's all made up for this. That's not how Celestials are born, but Tiamat is an actual Celestial in the comics. And when this happens, obviously the whole planet explodes. We see that dramatized. That would kill everyone, including Ajak. Like you say that Ajak gets to keep the memories. No, 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 no. They survive everyone. And we're going to find out at the end, they survive because of the Unimind. At the end of this movie, they're all going to be hit by the Unimind. It's because the Celestial gives them the power and that's how they survive. They specifically say at the end, I wondered how we survived the destruction of the planets. It's because we become the Unimind. Yeah, no, no, no. The Unimind is the calligraphy. It's the little, like, white glowy thing that shoots between them and then eventually goes to what looks like a green star city and, like, lives in some molecular cell stuff. I mean, they got some imagery to say that the memories get archived, but the bodies come off a factory assembly line. But they've erased the memories, so why would you archive? I mean, you might back them up, but... They're archived, but not to be put into the new people. Yeah, because Aramesh is saying he's learning stuff from it. That's the reason he keeps it. This is very confusing, but they specifically say at the end, this is how we survive the planet's destruction. So I can't tell you more than that, other than they've overstuffed this movie with lore and it doesn't all come together. Yeah, I agree with that. I feel like I worked really hard to try and understand the rules, and a lot of times I'm like... I I don't get it. And maybe I'm not smart enough. I don't know. But it does feel frustrating to work really hard and not feel like it really coheres. But yes, I heard what Jacob heard. And that is the memories are not for them. The memories are for Aramesh or who knows if he's got a boss that they're, you know, again, I always feel like there's always some other thing behind the thing. He does in the comics that it keeps going higher. There's like two more levels of godhood. 
He does say he keeps the memories so he can review them later on. They show, like, a physical manifestation of the memory, and it reminded me a little bit of Ego from Guardians 2. I think they might be trying to tie those together. Which I think we saw a Celestial in that one. One of the Guardians we saw a Celestial. Yeah, that was in the first one. Uh, nowhere was in the Celestial's head. Yeah, dead Celestial. Yeah. Mm, okay, uh, thank you for connecting that. I did not realize. Okay. So, again, Icarus is pretty mad at this point because Cersei is telling the others what he doesn't want them to know. If they don't know about this plan, then they're just going to go around killing deviants and they won't be, you know, trying to stop the emergence. But if they believe her, they've got to have the real moral debate about where do, where do our alliances lay? Do we go with Aramesh or do we go with the people we've fallen in love with? Droog, it seems, I, I don't know, you know, he was the one that was most outspoken about wanting human beings to play nice. I guess he's created a little village for himself in the Amazon where they serve him. I guess that's kind of how it looks. Yeah, it feels like a cult. Everything with Droog is scary. That's why I like him, just because he feels like, a, you know, a malevolent god. Like, if I had superpowers and I wanted everyone to act correctly, like, it would be Droog. And yeah, we, we'll see that. he. I don't know if they're always under control, but if they step out of bounds, you know he's taking control of them and punishing them. Yeah, they're not always under control because they get those funky eyes. Yeah. And when they walk up initially, their eyes aren't funky, but yet he's keeping track of them and able to take them over at a moment's notice. And I did think he would be in league with Icarus. I did think he would end up being evil too, just because he's played so evil and he looks so evil. He's got those sunken eyes. Such a great actor. Yeah, we talked about him in Green Knight and go watch Killing of a Sacred Deer. He is very scary in that movie. Yeah, I agree. It's more weird when he's playing a good guy. Like in Dunkirk, yes. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I'm supposed to have sympathy for him? That's right. He was in mm -hmm. that. But yeah, Drew, I didn't think he would join Icarus because obviously he has some kind of compassion for humans. He wanted to get involved with the wars and stop them and now he's kind of built this perfect community but he, yeah, he oversteps his bounds. He is still a dictator. Yeah, I, I don't quite get, again, this is where a full episode of him and how he's rectified his connection to humanity would be really helpful. It would be really nice to see how each person has connected in the 500 years that they've been apart from each other, finding their purpose and their life with humanity. But yeah, I don't. I wish I understood this village, and I don't. He doesn't like Icarus. I mean, that was one thing that came clear when they were dealing with the Aztec genocide, was that Icarus has always been, you know, we just do what we say kind of person, and this is the rebel. He's going to put on the leather jacket. He's going to be the one to say, I don't follow rules. He was the first one to break off, and he never left. This Amazon jungle is that Aztec community. Like, he makes the point that this was where we last were all together. I was trying to figure how far they were going to take him. Like, did Christopher Columbus, like, get murdered by him? Like, how much has human history changed because of him? Again, a full episode. that this <laughs> These ideas deserve more time than this movie can give. Yes. As long as this movie is, is not long enough to give full weight to these cool ideas. And by the same token, the other solution is cut a few of these characters down. Not to say they're not interesting, but save some for the sequel. Yeah, I, you're right. Nine is a lot in any movie, unless you're doing that kind of ensemble Robert Altman movie where the point is we're always running into different characters and how they ping pong off each other. It isn't really one of those kinds of movies. We're going step by step. And by this point in the Amazon, I'm like, can we get there? The fact yes. that we still got two more to find is like, ugh. And... 
I look at other Marvel movies. Guardians pulled this off, but there were five. And each of the five had an arc and had a character. It was a tree, like... Yeah, he had less than most, but there were just five. And then I look at Infinity War, where there were so many, but we'd established them all before. And yes, you were able to use some of them as ornamentation. You didn't have to give Drax an arc in Infinity War. Yeah, that wasn't about arcs, that film. There were some character arcs, but you focused on just a handful. Really, it was Thanos' arc, and Mm -hmm. the rest were just on for the ride until we got to Endgame. But here, we're being introduced to these characters for the first time, right? and not well, and I want more of something. I want more characterization and less characters. Right. Yeah. Your favorite character, you say, is going to die here. I, I think that's the purpose of coming to the Amazon is that we have Crow coming back in and he gets his tendrils into the big guy. And I never knew what his power was, but now he has it. He's strong. He's the strongest of them all. He gets those like energy gloves and he can punch hardest. What gets said here now, this is where they're really having the idea of, can we slow down this process? Can we put the Tiamat to sleep in time to get space travel going and get people off Earth so that when he hatches, no one will be on here to die? Interesting idea. I guess in the in internal speak, that's only a, a few centuries away. And so, yeah, we could potentially mu- move humanity to Mars or somewhere safe. No, you got to go further than Mars. You blow up like that. There's some repercussions to that. That looks like a huge explosion in that little air mesh scene we saw. Yeah, agreed. Plus, these Eternals, they have the superpower to make a plow, but can they terraform an entire <laughs> planet? I think you got to look at taking them to somewhere where the Guardians go. I mean, this is the brief moment where you have to realize the Guardians are out there going planet to planet and they all support human life. So we just take all these people to one of those. Yes, six billion people. I'm sure whatever planet we find will love that. Uh, Is this Fantastic Four? Is this where Captain Marvel is? Again, they've laid (laughs) the seeds for the fact that space is the future. And so I feel like this will be a part of it. I mean, this... What I heard you say in the plot is that Tiamat is dead. He won't wake up. But I thought maybe he was sleeping. I couldn't tell. They say killed at one point in the movie. It's iffy. They turned him to stone. They didn't put him to sleep. Yeah, it looks like he's marble at the end. Mm. And they say that a stone structure emerged from the ocean. So I don't think you wake up from being turned to stone. I don't know. It's more Greek myth, right, Medusa? Oh, I didn't go there with that. But maybe, again, I didn't take that college course. Yeah, Circe was like in in Ulysses where she turned like men to pigs or something on an island. Uh, Yeah. All right. Anyway, about this movie, I just one one more thing about the Amazon just before we leave and get to Fastos is, okay, so Crow now has has Gilgamesh in him, and that means Thena has got a personal grudge to kill him. She's not crazy anymore at this point. It comes and goes. Yeah. Yeah, because she's going to attack again, so she's still struggling with those memories. Okay. And it is now kind of walking upright and talking like a human being. Yeah, we see it evolve. Again, all about evolution somehow. And it makes the point that I had actually been having all this time. It was kind of ironic watching Droog being like, I hate watching these people commit genocide while he is trying to wipe out every deviant off the planet. I'm like, well, you pick and choose what you want to live, don't you? (laughs) That gets underlined here. That Crow actually makes that point of like, I blame you guys for wiping out my people. And that's why this is a fight. But Crow, again, his storyline and what he's trying to get accomplished really gets lost 
as we move into this climax where it's all about putting a god and the audience maybe to sleep. So next they have to find Fastos for reasons. I don't know that they need a big machine, but they do say Fastos would be the one to come up with a way to put the Celestial to sleep. Yeah, I thought they needed something to amplify Droog's power to put it to sleep. Yeah. Again, it's never clear to me. He's the one that's always throwing up rings into the air and creating, well, recognizable technology. But maybe he can figure out something on this. He has sworn off technology. After Hiroshima, we have this interesting little moment where he basically says Droog was right. I did this. I take responsibility for trying to say that humanity was ready for something that it was not. And it literally blew up in my face. And now I'm done with humanity. And what does that mean? It's kind of touching that he's turned around and become a family man. And we see him literally reinventing the wheel, putting a wheel on his kid's bicycle, trying to just live a suburban existence and not be the tech guy for the Eternals. And be a very subtle or not so subtle message. I see a contingent of Marvel fans turning away from this movie at this point for social messages that it will have in having a casually gay couple raising a child in Chicago. I mean, is that shocking? If that's shocking to you, can you guys get over that? That's not shocking. We had a cisgendered sex scene going on earlier. Deal with the gay couple. It should not be shocking. And yet we're not there. I hear you guys saying, why can't people get on? Like, because we're not. I mean, culturally, look around. We're not. Part of the reason we're in the mess we're in is because people don't want to bring in other cultures into their culture. And I think that's one way of reading this movie is like there's some people arguing it's great to pull all from the world and, you know, everyone's abilities and their differences are a strength and we can unify. And then you have people that are nationalistic and being like, no, this is who we are and we're resistant to that. So... It's not surprising that this is a character that's going to side with the human beings. He's fallen in love with a human being. He's found his purpose. He is comfortable saying he's a gay man and raising a child. And again, a whole nice episode about this would sell these concepts in a way that would make it more heart-tugging. As it is, it feels perfunctory. Yes, I agree completely. I like their relationship. They're a sweet couple, and Fastos says, I want to stay with my family, and his husband is like, you know what my mother would say, quit procrastinating, get out there. And I like what little they have, but it is so little. I would have liked more human relationships or more eternal relationships. I mean, I feel this husband is given no more and slightly less reason to be there than Kit Harrington. And yet we said all throughout Captain Marvel, like, are they in a relationship? What's going on? To see the kiss, to try and get to the place where we can finally deal with people on a human level will be very helpful going forward. Hopefully this does move the needle so that we can have gay characters and other kinds of characters without all of this hand-wringing about whether it will upset a certain segment of our movie-going audience. And I do want to recognize that Disney slash Marvel, like they stood with Chloe Zhao and did not remove the scene from some international cuts. Like there are some countries that are now refusing to show this movie because of it. And they're going to, you know, whatever box office that would have brought in, they're going to take a loss on that. Yep. I, again, it's a thing. We wish that it weren't. Yeah, I could see people like trying to, this is woke Marvel and that's why this is going to fail with, we got a person with a disability as a superhero and a, this international cast of people from all over the, like, to me, I'm like, I don't know, this is just how a movie can look. Like, And wouldn't you want that? Like, 
when you want diversity at this point. Isn't it really fascinating when you have a gay black man as a superhero? I don't want it to feel like tokenism, and I don't feel like this one comes off that way. It, it feels very natural. I agree completely. And, you know, the Avengers was a team of all white men, right? I mean, and Black Widow. But, you know, it's nice to have a change up from that. That said, I can already see the Twitter hate. Yeah, well, that's where we're at right now. I think culturally that's true too. And so, yeah, Fastos is the one that knows where the ship is. They go to Iraq. Uh, it's under an archaeological dig. Has it really been that long since they were flying around? Maybe. 500 years. I think they just hide the ship there. Yeah, the ship came 7,500 years ago, so yeah. But uh, there had to be a way in. Mercari has only been there at most 500 years, and she's been leaving to go get books. And Where has she been this film, though? I don't know. Like, she shows up and like, who is that? Oh, yeah, that's the one that runs fast and does the sign language. Like, wow, we're dropping her in? I did totally forget gotten about this agreed and if you were going to cut one this is probably it no story arc she wanted a tablet and she's got <laughs> one now so that was it and she might have a relationship with the creepy eyed guy yeah it's just not fair to these actors you know you end up saying like they're not good well it's not them there's no room for them in this overstuffed movie and yeah they've collected a whole bunch of stuff this is Excalibur it's teased that Thena was the lady from the lake because King Arthur had a crush on her and she's literally got the sword of Excalibur I think that plays into the final scene of this movie. No, no, that's a different sword, Stuart. Don't mix up your mythical Marvel sword. It is? We'll get there, though. Yeah, they ask her, hey, is that the Ebony Blade? And she's like, no, this is Excalibur. And that's just name-dropping the Ebony Blade because that's what's going to show up in a post credit scene. Okay. I thought they were setting up the sword that was going to be the thing, but there's another sword. Woo, this is complicated. But this is where they have it out, and it's revealed Icarus killed Ajax by taking Ajax to Deviance and just pushing her in the pit so it looked like Deviance did it. And it was all a ruse thinking that the Eternals are going to fight Deviance for a week before they realize, oops, it's too late, the Celestial's being born. Begging the question... All right, so this is a man, Icarus, that does everything that his boss says without question. I, this is what you want. I'm a good soldier. But he made a pact with Deviants? Like Crow and him are buds? No, no, no. He took Ajax to where Deviants were and threw her in, not knowing that one of the Deviants down there would absorb her energy and her powers. And the Deviant that did that is Crow. And thus he became the Alpha Deviant, who then transformed past some of that energy on and evolved other fellow Deviants so one could fly and they all looked different at that point, although I can't tell them apart. Then here at the final battle, Crow is going to show up, but he's not on anybody's side except he wants to kill all the Eternals and absorb their power. And because these are all beings created by Celestials, they don't have to worry about the planet blowing up. They're going to be fine. They can travel galactically. Okay, I guess that it seems convenient, but I guess it makes sense that he didn't really know that Crow was there or could do what he could do to create the deviant problem. But he did want a deviant problem so that these people deviated from finding out about the emergence. Yes, he needed deviants, so they deviated. Ugh, I just... <laughs> this could have used some work. I, I appreciate that they wanted to be complicated. It's real easy, Stuart. Get rid of the deviants. They are not needed in this film. You make an excellent, excellent point. Like... 
we get a whole fight between Crow and Thena, and it feels like obligatory. Like, oh, this is the revenge scene for killing my boyfriend. Yeah, well, it's helpful. I mean, I, again, that gives her something to do. If she's not going to be the leader of this, we can't have too many people running to the volcano. So, yes, it's helpful that she has someone to fight. Everyone should have something to do in a climax. And God help us, we now have, well, they've killed two of them, but we still have seven people that need storylines. But five, because three went off, really. Poor Camille. He just leaves. Kingo, <laughs> he's like, I'm not going to fight you, but I don't believe in fighting against a celestial. So I'm going back to Bollywood with my valet, and you guys go. And then Icarus is like, I'm going to go protect the celestial. And Sprite is, I'm with you, Ick. And so the two of them go off together, and that only leaves five Eternals to be heroes. Yeah, there's this really awkward conversation that Kingo gives to Sprite about Peter Pan and the Lost Boys and how Tinkerbell loved Peter and he loved Wendy. And I wish there was a better way they could have got that imagery into here instead of just like explaining it like they do with so much in this film. Well... It's a myth, right? I mean, not really. I don't think of Peter Pan as a myth, but... No, it's just a story. Yeah, but again, that's Gaiman's game. <laughs> in the Gaiman comics I saw, it was actually Sprite that created and inspired the Peter Pan tale. Yeah, she inspired everyone. Shakespeare, or I guess he... They gender-swapped a lot of the characters here. Houdini, even. They show a Houdini poster with her in the background. So, yes. Yeah. Again, what did we accomplish as human beings? And if, if we're nothing but an empty vessel of them, is their love for us nothing but narcissism? So many questions here, but let's just stick to the basics. It's a big fight at a volcano. We've all got to stop the big guy from coming out of the ground. This is the battle we've been given. So they form the Unimind using the magic bracelets created by Fastos. And the Unimind was something also from that game in comics, so I know it's a comic creation. Yeah, no, it even came before Gaiman. Okay, I just knew it from that one. And I think, I mean, in thinking about this conceptually, if I'm correct, and that we're seeing things that are going to be farmed out to the X-Men, this is the first Cerebro? It's not connecting them mentally, it's because he says, we're androids and we have energy, and what we can do is funnel our energy into one of us, and that one is the Unimind who is going to be more powerful because the rest of us are all going to be suspended. I'm telling you, when we get the MCU X-Men, they will have a reference to the Unimind. You know what I was thinking? Because I know we're getting Fantastic Four at some mm -hmm. point, but I'm like, oh, I guess we can't do Galactus because this is more or less like the Galactus saga. I was going to be shocked if they did it, but I th almost thought, oh, is the Unimind going to be the ultimate nullifier that Reed Richard uses in the comics to defeat Galactus? Like, is, are they setting all that up? But no, they're sticking more or less to the eternal lore. Yeah, we. I mean, it's an end climax. I mean, if this is a comic book movie, then we know know it's got to end with something big something giant and taller than everyone else doing something that has to be brought down and it's a baby celestial though it's kind of anticlimactic that we must win by attacking an infant <laughs> no i do feel like if you're familiar with the work of warren ellis like his comic work i know he's kind of canceled now so maybe i shouldn't be talking about him but yeah a group of superheroes having to destroy a god fetus like feels like what he writes in every comic he's ever done like like i actually like this concept a lot just because yeah it's something i've read in comics and it's not a big laser in the sky i like how yeah you see these fingers coming out out of the ocean like big stones and yeah we're just gonna turn it to marble turn it into something beautiful 2001 started with a monolith and ended with a god baby this started with domo which looks like the monolith and ends with a yes. god baby <laughs> yeah 
I'm not advocating for more characters in this movie, God knows. But don't you think that, like, the fight should involve human beings since they're the ones that, like, have the most at stake here? Like, I feel like the human lovers, maybe Fastos should have brought his husband. Kit Harrington should have had something to do. Yeah. He brought Kit Harrington into this movie. Couldn't he be the human tagging along to do something? Flip a switch, do something during this climax? Which MCU Avengers are still around? I, I, I guess we have, like, Bucky and... Ant-Man. Okay. I thought it would have been funny if one of them would have showed up, like, after they defeated this. And they're like, I'm here to help. But no, they really don't pull any other Marvel things into this. You have to suspend disbelief. But again, I feel like this movie does much better as a standalone than trying to shoehorn it into the MCU. Yes, no, it works much better as not a Marvel movie, just a weird sci-fi movie. And I mean, again, it's like Guardians. Like we've, we're just detached enough that if this doesn't work, we don't ever have to worry about it too much. That people won't feel like they've made it so important that it, it's Jar Jar and can't be ignored. The big shocker here, I think, in cutting through all of this is that Sprite was willing to stab Cersei, right? Like that she loved Icarus so much. It isn't for the political reasons of I want a Celestial to be born. It's that you always get the boys and I hate you. And so I'm just going to get you in the back while you think you're looking at Ajax. Yes. Although nobody was fooled into thinking no. it was Ajax. She's like, is this who you are, Sprite? And then Sprite does stab her in the back. Sprite should die for this, right? I mean, spoiler alert for comics that were written 20 years ago and were a motion comic 10 years ago, but in that comic, Sprite is the bad guy because Sprite is pissed that he can't grow up and becomes human so that he can be killed. At the very end, the punishment is Sprite's neck is snapped for the treachery. Here, I'm like, okay, they're going to go with the comic way. They're going to turn Sprite human and snap her neck. I don't think that's what this group is about, though. Even when they see horrible things happen, like Fastos received, had a deal with the fallout, the literal fallout of something he created that made him reflect on humanity. I just don't feel like we're going to punish people in this one. Maybe Icarus even punishes himself. They even let him go by the end. Yeah, no, I even feel like that's the message is that ultimately what's what it's about is like we've seen so much war and genocide. Love is the answer. Like loving humanity is the way to fight back against this. And so they're really trying something by having it not be about Thunderdome whittling it down to the good Eternals versus the bad Eternals. Yeah, they set up so much with Cersei to be the one that comes in and saves the day, but that's not what this film is about. I was like actually going to be very upset. I'm like, is this just Cersei like destroying this celestial baby being born at the end like no this is about a team having to come together and work together like it should be a team dynamic and, and they end up doing that they end up forming that unimind by the end and doing it yeah everybody else becomes a battery and Cersei does everything I don't know that that's exactly what I call teamwork well she is the leader now and again she's had to grapple with that but she's not even confident she did the right thing I mean upon reflection at the end she's like I'm not sure killing this or whatever I did to this is going to be ultimately good for humanity and king goes like yeah but you followed your heart and i feel like that's the message is that ultimately uh, doing what you love is what's going to compel it is about to get hippie and drippy like it is about not picking up the knife we'll give that to jolie jolie can pick up the knives and stab crow <laughs> but the real climax is about expressing love for humanity and that just looks like turning a iron giant into stone but I am very confused how that happens because, and I'm paying such close attention, gripping onto every word second viewing as to how this happened. And they're like, because they form the Unimind with the bracelets 
And then later we're going to hear Druig say, I couldn't do it. It's up to you, Cersei. And I never really saw Druig struggling to put the Celestial to sleep. You know, just uh, some scenes devoted to that would have been nice. And then at the end, Cersei is there and they form the Unimind seemingly unwillingly. Like they didn't intend to do it at that time, even... Sprite and Icarus become part of the Unimind at this moment, and that's when Cersei realizes, oh, I can turn this thing to stone, and does. I think that's the message of right now, is like, we don't have to agree to come together in some weird way. Like, if we're going to survive and not kill each other, like just looking at the world right now, we may remain diverse, we may not even agree with each other, but we have to find a way to unify if we're going to live. And I think that you're right. Even Tiamat participates in his own destruction. Like there is compliance from all. Icarus gets dragged in there too. Even though he was fighting for a different outcome, coming together ultimately is the key to staying alive. Yeah, despite being the film's antagonist, Icarus isn't going to be defeated so much as he's going to self-sacrifice and fly too close to the sun because that's what Icarus does, or fly directly into the sun anyway. And I never got it. I guess he can really travel past light speed. I mean, he got all the way to the sun in a matter of seconds. But then we're going to get a bit of a denouement here, as they're back in London, and yes, we see three of the Eternals are leaving, three of the Eternals are staying, and Sprite is no longer an Eternal. She chose to become human. I'm shocked we didn't have Kingo, like, show back up and go, have you heard the one about Pinocchio, about a puppet that turned into a real living human? <laughs> next movie, next movie. They got they got to mind more myths and fairy tales. I have to say, I was really bothered. You know, continuity bugs me sometimes. And coming into this movie, I'm like, you hired an adolescent to play an immortal, and she's never supposed to age. By the time they get around to the sequel, she's going to be college age, and this is, she's not going to be able to play 14 for long. I was kind of glad that they got an out and decided to let her age in story. Yeah, they had to figure out something. Either that or it was going to be really expensive, right? Like, that's a lot of CGI <laughs> to keep her looking like this. And again, I, I like this. I think this is a real chance for this character to grow. You're very immature for someone that's been around for 7,000 years. And like, yeah, what will it be like for you to embrace your mortality and thus also embrace the pleasures of being a human? I think this she could end up being the breakout character and be the one that I really love whenever that story, if it ends up being a solo Eternals movie or combined with some other character. Surprisingly, I thought we'd never see Sprite again. She's human, she's going off to boarding school, and will never be mentioned again. Yeah. <laughs> Depends on the love for this movie, I would imagine, but I want to know what happens next. I think what happens next is more important than anything she's done yet. So what happens next is three Eternals went off in the Domo, the three we care least about because they don't have human attachments. The three who enjoy humans. Maybe. Kingo and Fastos and Cersei, two of whom are in love, stay on Earth to enjoy humanity, while the three who really had very, very little to do, especially Makari and Thena and Druig, decide to go off and tell other Eternals, hey, your life is a lie. That is the movie I want to follow. I, like, yeah, I want to see more of Thena and Druig. What about Makari? 
<laughs> I, I can't forget she's here, so she can stand in the corner and not do anything. But then we get this scene that really made me excited because I thought Galactus was showing up. The clouds part <laughs> and a giant yeah. being stands there and everybody's screaming and I'm like, Galactus! Oh, it's just Arishem. Yeah, but he's going to pass judgment. He's sparing humanity for now. He's going to go review the tapes, go look at the memories in the databank, and make a determinant about what to do, both with these three that he's going to, like, whisk away and put in prison somewhere. And in general, we might be, like, might take another week, but we might still be blown up. When will this be determined? When will this storyline be picked up on? It could be thousands of years. I mean, keep in mind that the Eternals don't work at the same speed we do. So they're just literally going to leave this, like, Tiamat creation, like, just floating around <laughs> uh, the coast of Africa? Yeah, it's going to be a great tourist site. Yeah. Come see the fingers of a god. Sure. This is, like, another Tuesday to, like, people on Earth, too, after being snapped away and all the things that, you know, like, superheroes are and their problems have been very public by this point. Yeah, I, I don't think they're so much afraid of something rising from the ocean, but they saw those fingers they're like oh no they're gonna snap like people gotta have ptsd at this point like snapping is outlawed right you don't want to hear that sound anymore mm -hmm. for sure and then in space the three eternals who left are like well we got to turn around right away because something happened to the three we left behind so instead of doing our mission that was so important let's go back and see where they went but first i feel something or maybe i just have a smell a <laughs> watermelon sugar high because harry styles is suddenly like first first comes this most no yeah you're you're jumping the gun here pip the troll shows up first that is some awful cgi that was some it is inexcusable last minute we decided to put this in <laughs> cgi but i swore pip the troll looked and sounded like Seth Rogen. I thought it was Seth Rogen in the MCU. It turns out it's the voice of Patton Oswalt, but it, he's really yeah. doing a Seth Rogen voice. What the hell is this? Yeah, I got to imagine, Arnie, maybe you have some knowledge because you follow these things closer. Like Star Fox and Pip the Troll, they're, yeah, maybe they'll show up in Eternals too. They're going to the Guardians, though. They're joining up with Adam Warlock. That is their story, at least in the comics. So I got to wonder if Pip the Troll shows up here just because James Gunn wanted him in Guardians 3. It's very possible because when they showed up, I did read online, some people said the way they teleported in looked like they came from the Bifrost. It's the Bifrost, yeah. And so, although it didn't leave huge patterns in the ground the way the Bifrost did. There was rainbow power going on. If you understand that the Eternals are the ones that shared knowledge throughout the universe, I mean, it could have been Eternals that gave Asgard that Bifrost power. We have no knowledge of Eternals anywhere on Asgard. <laughs> no, we don't, but I'm just trying to extrapolate here. And this is a Greek god. I mean, he's Eros, the god of love. And so yes. I'm thinking like Jolie's got a new boyfriend the way that they're playing this. <laughs> I think you're underselling. It's the brother of Thanos, which I thought that was going to get the reaction from the crowd. No, it's when they finally pan up and show Harry Styles' face, and that's what got the reaction. Like, people apparently excited for Harry Styles. Yeah. Very excited in my audience. Yeah. It was one of the few cheer moments. I feel this has really gone off the rails. Like, really, like... And it was already off the rails, but, like... And here's the thing, Stuart. This is why I don't like the Cosmic Marvel stuff in the comics. Because, yeah, it's Pip the Troll in Star Fox. Not the Nintendo character, but Euros. Yeah, I got confused. And I'm like, is this the video game Star Fox? I didn't know. Yeah, is he going to join up with Rocket Raccoon? And we're going to get a Nintendo spinoff movie that Justin could come in and review? I had no idea there was a Star Fox in the Marvel Universe. This is all... All new to me, nor did I know 
know there was Pip the Troll? It's Thanos' brother. Yeah, I mean, this is, I think, a revelation, perhaps, that Thanos, I don't know if we ever knew that he was an Eternal as well, though he gets the deviant gene. That's why he's purple and looks weird, and Star Fox gets to look like Harry Styles. Oh, is that why? I thought Eros had just the good complexion in the family. No, he, he's got, like, pure Eternal genes, and Thanos got a deviant gene in there. Even though he has both Eternals as parents. Hmm, I hope they explain that in the movies. It's like stripes and plaids coming together. Like, at a certain point, <laughs> this is clashing. Like, I feel like there's too many myths, too many storylines are being asked to, like, unify here. And I know, like, Marvel has, like, their own, like, Hercules, right? So, like, yes. this could all be... Oh, yeah! Hercules is a character in the Marvel Universe. They're gonna head into this, like, anything from any folklore or, or cultural story is gonna be a part of this. Like, on a spaceship... In the comics, the leader of the Eternals isn't Ajax, it's Zeus, who is, of course, Zeus. Yes, Zeus. But they removed that from this movie because Zeus is going to be in Thor 4. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, I know in the comics, too, there's lots of Eternals and Deviants, and I think they've actually killed most of them off, so there's only like 10, which seems a lot for this movie, but much more manageable for the comic. Oof. There's such a thing as having too big a universe, and this is really starting to feel like it's expanding. I feel like this is all because Pip the Troll shows up. If it was just Star Fox, like, you're like, okay, just another human eternal guy. But it's like, oh, now we got trolls and we're in space? Like, what is going on? No, because he's like the god of love and doing like this Mac thing. And all. like, it was just very cheesy. And the fact that you're linking it to Guardians helps me because I can realize that, that it was meant to be comedy. That's what I'm guessing they're doing. Because, yeah, Adam Warlock, remember those gold people in Guardians 2? And they were hatching something out of a cocoon. They're going to team up with that character. This makes makes sense to me because the Guardians are in Thor 4, and so if he's somehow from the Bifrost, that would tie them all together, leading into Guardians 3, and creating new characters for the Guardians for after James Gunn leaves that franchise after Part 3, so yeah, there's all of that, but we're, there's also vampires in this end credit scene. It wasn't just the end credit scene, we did see... Kingo makes some vampire jokes, like people thought he was a vampire, which I thought was pretty funny. Yeah, his valet did and stabbed him in the chest. <laughs> but this scene had to have been filmed so much later, because I'm watching this movie, the credits end, and there's this character walking around, I'm like, who is that? I didn't even recognize Kid Harrington. His hair is all different. It's bigger. It's like a lot of time has passed. Like everything else was ready pre-COVID and they got him post-COVID <laughs> to film this scene. Yeah, they. I mean, they set this up like the last time we saw him is like right before we cut to the credits and he's going to tell Cersei, oh, I got, I got some troubling ancestry. I'm like, oh, great. I got to look up who Dane is. He's obviously someone. He's King Arthur's kid, right? This is like he's going to get Excalibur and be like. No, it's not Excalibur. It's the Ebony Blade. He's going to be Black Knight and it's this blade that has a bloodlust. Black Knight? Yes, that's going to be his name. Martin Lawrence is going to show up in this universe? Awesome. <laughs> I'm sure that will be the memes that come out. <laughs> but first, yes, as he's, because, you know, the whole thing about, like, the sword and the stone is you have to be worthy to lift it. Is that true of this sword? Nope, you just got to be willing to kill people. And that's why he talks about his troubling ancestry. His, I believe his uncle was the previous Black Knight and he was evil because that sword needs blood. There was a line earlier where he's FaceTiming with Cersei and Cersei can't tell him the world is ending, but says, yes. you know that uncle you always wanted to make nice with? Now's the time to do that. And so apparently when he made nice with the uncle off screen, the uncle's like, I have the sword of death and it will turn you into the Black Knight if you hold it. <laughs> 
Oh, okay. Here's my question, though, because then we hear a voice. The voice. I thought it was Samuel L. Jackson. Me too. No, 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 no. I thought it was someone doing Fury and wanting you to think it was Sam Jackson. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't like Samuel L. Jackson, but I thought they were being Fury. I was like, oh, they recast him. I guess he is too old for it. They're really going to go with the new Fury. Well, is he still alive, Arnie? I don't remember what happened to Fury. He's still alive, and right now, as we record this, Sam Jackson is filming Secret Wars for Disney+. And that was the setup at the end of Spider-Man Far From Home. That's right. That's when we lost something. So, yes, he's still alive and well, but I thought this was, I mean, it's one line. Are you sure you're ready? Yeah, I thought he's putting together a new team. <laughs> Me too. But it turns out, I had to read this online, I wouldn't have never known Mahershala Ali from his voice despite watching Luke Cage, but that is the first appearance of Blade in the MCU. And I knew this, not, I didn't have to go online to read this because I'm sitting in the theater Thursday night and I hear that and I'm like ooh that's a really bad Sam Jackson impersonation and then a guy like unprovoked just like gets up he's in the first row he turns to the entire theater and screams it's Blade everybody <laughs> it's Blade and I was like oh really <laughs> you know what I briefly forgot you don't live in LA anymore I'm like in LA that's fine in Springfield that's an anomaly <laughs> Yeah, it was really weird. And he was a little eccentric as well. He looked a little bit like Pip. So I don't know. And I guess that has been confirmed by Marvel. It is Blade. I don't know. Are we going to get like a sword fighter movie? Like a team of people with swords? Like, I don't know why Blade's showing up. Yeah. Now glow in the dark coloring that's striped and plaid and pays. Like how much tacky can we take when a day walking vampire and King Arthur's kid are going to go to outer space with, you know, like, okay, no. Get some order to this. <laughs> this is just gauche. All right. So on that note, let's see if this movie matches. Jacob Stewart, do you recommend our listeners go see Eternals? Jacob. This is one I actually had a struggle with because I'm watching this film and I'm like, I hate all the deviant stuff. I, I wish this was more fleshed out. Oh, here's a scene I really like. I like the stuff with Druig and taking on the conquistadors and reflecting on like what role they should really. Have. Oh, I like the stuff with Thena and her memory. Like I was really going back and forth. At the end of the day, though, I'm like, I, I gave Shang-Chi a recommend and I liked elements of this way more. Like if I'm going to watch a film again. I'm going to probably watch this one. Maybe that's because I need to understand it more. But like, I felt way more compelled to, if I was going to do a rewatch of something from phase four, it would be this one because yes, despite all its flaws, there's a lot of interesting stuff. And again, maybe this is the influence of just having watched Dune recently, where it was this very obtuse sci-fi thing that I don't see what the appeal is. Yeah, sure, David Lynch did some weird, funny things in his, and there's that awful sci-fi thing. I don't care about the. Oh, now someone made a version of it I really like. And I feel like this Eternals, this is more the Lynch version of Dune for Eternals. Like, this is the one, like, a lot of people aren't going to understand, but there's some really compelling things in it, and maybe in, you know, 40 years, we'll get a reboot, and Denis Villeneuve's uh, grandchild will direct it, and it will be amazing and make sense and all of that. You're really not far off, Jacob. Denis and Zhao are friends, and Denis let her see early cuts of Dune so she could get ideas of how to do action and how to film in IMAX, so... If this isn't enough of a villain you Eternals for you, that seems to be what Zhao was going for. 
So despite all its flaws, there's something that really hit me with this one, maybe because it felt so different than all these Marvel films we've been watching. Seven this year, apparently. I didn't realize it was that high. But I think about Marvel, and I said this with Chang-Chi, like the MCU puts out really consistent flavors of Coke. Like they might add some cherry to it or a little bit of different flavoring, but it's all Coke and, and it's all decent. It's all fine. And that's my thing with Marvel. Like I, I think of auteur cinema, like where do we have that with Marvel? Like my favorite film is the Russo brothers, but I don't know what the Russo brothers vision is for a film. When I watch Guardians, I definitely feel the pull of James Gunn in that. When I watch Thor Ragnarok, that's definitely like a film by Taika Waititi. It feels very different and with the humor and the way it's set up. And I feel like Eternals, like as messy as it is, as much as they put in fights because that's what MCU fans want. Like I want to get rid of all that. I do feel like they're is an outside influence, which I'm happy to see someone bringing in other elements of, of cinema and all that and bringing in their own style. It, now, it's not consistent. It's messy. It, it's all of those things. But sometimes films we like are messy, but they have those great ideas that intrigue us and we want to explore more. And so this is not going to be... Arnie, you're saying, do we recommend it to our listeners? I don't know. If, if you're sick of the MCU stuff, yeah, watch this one. It feels different. It's a messy film. There's a lot going on. You, you might have to watch it a couple times, but it's one I wouldn't mind watching a couple times. I think there's enough stuff going on there. There, It feels unique enough. It's different. It's not maybe going to be the crowd pleaser. It's not going to be that cool bus scene in Shang-Chi. It, it's, you know, it's not going to have that stuff. But if you want something different, here's your MCU one entry for that. And I'm surprised because I was going into this one really indifferent, like not excited about it. Look kind of droll and boring. But I, I liked when we do get those character moments with the Eternals. I, I really lean in and get into those scenes. So I, I'm going to give this one a mild recommend. Stuart. I hear what you're saying, Jacob, and I'm going to say not different enough for me. Like that was the struggle was I really thought in this movie promise. There, we're going to do so many things you haven't seen before. Sex scenes and Chloe Chow and all of that stuff. And in the end, it really does just feel like another Marvel movie. It does feel like an Avengers movie where I don't recognize any of the characters. And so I saw this twice. The first time I came out spinning Venom. Like I hated the film. Just hated the film. Because I was so frustrated. The experience of trying to cognitively process all of this lore in three hours was just too much. It was not entertainment. I was using other parts of my brains. And even in struggling with that, I felt like it wasn't rewarding me by giving me all the answers. And so I'm like, this movie isn't smart enough to be art and it's not entertaining enough to be a, a fun superhero movie. But then I really thought about second time as I was sinking in, like, what are the character arcs? What is this movie? And I thought, oh, it's a Marvel TV show. Like how sad it is that ultimately it couldn't flip roles with Loki. Loki would have been better not to have so many episodes, just gotten to it. And this movie really needs to breathe. It really needs Chloe Chow, in order for her to work her magic, she needs to be able to just sit with some characters and have some human moments where things aren't flying around and there aren't like special effect shots in the background. We need to know them as human beings if we're to root for them as these, you know, mythical first superheroes. And I feel like, yes, there's something here that I did like, but this movie, I did not. I did not find it entertaining. I did not find it unusual enough to say it took me to somewhere new. I really felt like it was 
kind of trapped halfway between invention, creation, as it were, and destruction. Just like the themes of this movie, they got halfway there, but really were limited by being a, a Marvel movie experience. And it makes me sad. I don't like the fact that I'm giving this a not recommend, because I do think there's a lot of cool things here. But ultimately, I didn't enjoy this. I'm not going to recommend it. But maybe further down the road, I could see liking these Eternals in isolation, but maybe they're not meant for their own movie. I struggled with this one a lot. This movie is confirming something that I've been thinking for a little while. We are firmly in the Marvel Age of Mediocrity. They had a great run. They had like 19 movies. Some of them were pretty mediocre. I'm just going to put it out there. I would say this phase maybe hasn't had a real standout one like the other phases did, which makes it feel more mediocre. The other phases all had multiple standout ones. Agree. And introduced new characters that were exciting. And its hits were much greater than its misses. You know, it had a lot of home runs, but even when it didn't knock it out of the park, it was at least able to put somebody on base. Here, I think Kevin Feige took his eye off the ball. I mean, he went over to TV land and he literally said in interviews that the Marvel movies are able to go on autopilot and they take care of themselves. They've been doing it so long that they don't have to worry about it. Well, guess what, Kevin? Yeah are looking like you kind of got to worry about it. You're in a rebuilding year, and if you think these movies are just rote and can take care of themselves, what you're delivering are unimpressive films that lower the MCU's overall batting average. This movie doesn't have the worst Marvel movie elements in it. I find Arishim and Icarus much more interesting and motivated than Dark Elves, so I'll give it that, but... Man, I watched this movie the first time, and like Stuart, I was struggling to take it in, but I walked out, and I'm like, it was better than I expected it to be. Hmm. Wow. Okay. okay. <laughs> it had the benefit of the lowest of expectations. You really expected to dislike it. I expected to really hate this movie. Yeah, you really did think that it was, uh, I think the word was boring. Yes, that's what I thought it would be, and... Even the first time through, there were points where this movie dragged. I mean, the obvious pun, it really felt eternal. Yeah, it's. I, I keep saying I wanted it to slow down, but the movie's plenty... It will put you to sleep, and I think part of it was I was really tired on Thursday night, and I needed eight hours before I could really get into it. Yeah, Druig had that effect on my audience, I could tell. But I walked out thinking, you know, I really liked Kingo, and I liked Gilgamesh, and that's about it. <laughs> yeah, you like the MCU characters, I, I feel like. The ones that would appeal more to the Marvel fans of the films. Yeah, they're, they're specifically the ones that are going to make you laugh, as opposed to the ones that are, you know, in love or struggling for their relationships. That's because the romances never felt real. They never felt fleshed out. You give me a brief sex scene that still doesn't make me feel attraction between these actors. Those actors never once made me feel like Cersei was being pulled between two loves. Not once. I know they had the Snapchat filter moment, but I never believed for a second Cersei was going to leave Kit Harrington for Icarus. I mean, Icarus and Cersei never had any romantic chemistry. Kit Harrington's barely here. So how can I feel invested in a romance where it's undersold or 
barely present. Again, I'm struggling because this movie is just so bland. But then when I, w- I had to go back and see it a second time, because when I'm on the fence, a second viewing solidifies it. Mm-hmm. And that second viewing told me I never want to watch this movie again. It is dull. Oh. It is so dull on a second viewing. The first time I at least had the benefit of not knowing what was going on. And on the second time when I kind of knew what was going on, I realized this movie is way too long in spots and takes so much time to get to where it's going. And when it gets there, It's unfulfilling, and I'm really struggling because I've never not recommended an MCU movie. I didn't recommend Inhumans, but that one doesn't really count. Yeah, I I was going to say, that one doesn't really count. (laughs) And the thing is, I feel like, you know, when I was a kid, I was a pretty good student in grade school, middle school, early high school. I got good grades. I was friends with the teacher. I got special assignments. And when I do something wrong, that if a different student did it, that student would be in deep shit. But if I did it, sometimes the teacher would let it slide. Like, he's a good kid, and I don't want it on his permanent record, whatever a permanent record really is. You were playing those teachers. (laughs) So, I feel like the MCU is that good kid. I hate to give it a bad grade, (laughs) because I know it's a good kid by and large. But I can't recommend this movie. I really don't think that it is something worth your time. I find Nomadland to be something worth your time. If you want a really slow, drawn-out movie, go watch Nomadland. It does it much better. That didn't seem like a compliment. (laughs) That is called a backhanded compliment, where you're saying, oh, this is good for people that like bad things. It's not as boring as Eternals. (laughs) Okay. No, I mean, I don't want to overstate it. I don't think Nomadland is cinematic greatness, but... Like Jacob said at the top of the show, I love, I love the non-actors giving their stories and being in the film and the documentary feel to it. That was the joy to me. I am surprised to hear you say, Arnie, that a second viewing makes it more dull because I feel like I could comprehend the story and found it way more interesting once I could understand what was going on. It just wasn't involving as a movie movie. You know, the experience of sitting and watching it was the dull part. But what it's grappling with, what it's doing... I mean, I think I just wanted it to be an A24 movie and not a Marvel movie. See, I think it's neither fish nor flesh in that regard. It doesn't satisfy me as a Marvel movie because it doesn't have that Marvel spirit and it is too laboriously paced and the characters. Like I said, it was the second viewing where I realized most of them don't have arcs and they're just there filling up screen and screen time, but not accomplishing anything that makes me damn this film for its writing and its directing. I think this movie is mismanaged. I think we're all saying something similar. Like, this shouldn't be a Marvel film. Like, just make it its own thing. If you're a fan of the MCU, this is probably going to disappoint you. Yeah, I think you have to like the Neil Gaiman stuff. And I can go with other types of movies, but don't have the deviance like Jacob said. I think there's another factor that you probably should own up to. We're now into the further reaches of a Marvel universe that you didn't grow up knowing. They didn't have to tell you who Thor and Captain America and Hulk were because you've known them all your life. But now we're into characters that, again, I would argue no child will even find attractive. Like this is not even for kids. Perhaps, but I didn't know Thor. I went in as reluctant to Thor in 2011. We weren't podcasting on the MCU back then. But in 2011, I went into Thor the same way I went into Eternals. I'm like, I don't want no Norse god with blonde hair and a winged helmet. No. But that movie won me over. But those were characters in the pop culture, at least. Like, Adventures in Babysitting, a lot of stuff about Thor in that movie. Like, people knew the comics. 
Yeah. You've known Thor your whole life. But I never read a Thor comic once. Yeah, I'm not talking about needing to read a comic. I'm talking about in just you being alive as a human being in the 1980s, everyone that was in Avengers was someone that you had a familiarity with, with exception of Black Widow. Yeah, Hawkeye and Black Widow. And the Guardians, though. What about the Guardians? I never read a Guardians comic. Guardians took me someplace I'd never been before and didn't want to go with a talking tree and a talking raccoon. That movie and that team won me over instantly, and this one is dull as shit. But it's also Star Wars and funny. Like, those are things we understand. Again, the Guardian still appeals to children, whereas I do not know why anyone under 12 would want to see this. Again, the Happy Meal toys. I'm just confounded. Yeah. The Eternals, this is Alan Moore, where superheroes are boring and don't connect with humanity and maybe shouldn't exist. Like, this is a thing we're not as familiar with as a pop culture. All right, Alan Moore, yeah. Let's look at Watchmen. I think Watchmen's a good comparative to Eternals, and I didn't know Watchmen the comic before I watched Watchmen the movie, and God knows Watchmen isn't a perfect film, but it did ponderous superheroes much better than Eternals did. And... Eternals is nowhere near as good as Watchmen in isolation, apples to apples, let alone putting Eternals in as part of a big Marvel shared universe. I mean, let's not forget, I recommended Watchmen the movie, and that has even less action than this one, I do think. I kind of expect that, and I expect that with people really into the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Like, this is probably going to be a disappointment. My recommend is, yeah, watch this if you're not a fan, because it's different. It, it, it's not your typical MCU, for the most part. Yeah, they'll never do another Eternals movie on its own. It says the Eternals will return. That's at the end. Oh, they will. In other people's movies, and I don't know exactly where that would be, but yes, they're not going to be popular enough. This was always going to be a huge risk based largely on goodwill. Like when your favorite artist like records like old country tunes or something, you know, like Chris Gaines. <laughs> okay, I'll let you do this indulgence. You know, you can try out this little thing once, but don't ever sell me another record like this again. And they won't. Well, what's funny is they do seem to be hedging their bets. Producer of this, Nate Moore, said, An Eternal sequel isn't something that's a must-have. Obviously, we have ideas where we could go, but there's no hard and fast rule where we have to have three of these things, and this is the first. So he's kind of hedging his bets. Yeah. Yeah, which tells me they have other ways to pay off these characters. They, they already have a roadmap. Absolutely. It's like Incredible Hulk, right? I mean, that one didn't hit, and... But... Still, this one is estimated to make 70 million as of this recording, and that's a big pandemic number. I think just the Marvel name is going to carry this enough. I feel Eternals 2 is in our future. No, I, I mean, we'll see. But I think what this movie does do is really got us going to the thought that everything that's happening next is about getting humans off the planet and into outer space. And that with knowing the characters that they want to, to work into this Fantastic Four, we got to get Captain Marvel back, all the things, multiverses and what have you. It does feel like we're going to leave planet Earth. Well, not for the next Marvel movie. We only have to wait a month, but Spider-Man is going to certainly be Earthbound. Multiple Earths. Yeah, and I know you're excited about that. I wish I could work up enthusiasm. Spider-Man has always been a harder character uh, in adulthood to connect with for me. 
I don't know, a character who constantly is struggling with bills and job and everything. I can relate to Peter Parker much more as an adult than I ever could as a kid. You're thinking of Tobey Maguire Peter Parker. This is Tom Holland high school Peter Parker. Yeah, I haven't loved the previous two movies. Just going to put it out there, particularly that one in Europe. But yes, maybe they can pull it off. They're certainly going for something extravagant and grand. And maybe, you know, maybe it all work out. I really did like that animated Spider-Man movie. That was a multiverse. So if they can be as good as that, and it could be a fraction as good as that, it'll be a really good one. But, you know, and then like two months from now, we get Mobius or Morbius or what is he? He's a vampire. Yeah, Mobius is from Loki. This is Morbius. He's a living vampire. He, he became a vampire from a blood transfusion. It doesn't look like that in this movie, but wow. Jared Leto, if he can't be Joker, he's going to go be Batman, right? <laughs> yeah, I again, I feel like I really need a Marvel break, but it's just not coming. We're talking about, you know, nine movies within or nine, you know, installments within 12 months is, yeah. Oof. And that's not even including like What If and Hawkeye and all that stuff. But then I think Spider-Man's going to have a sequel. Doctor Strange is in Spider-Man No Way Home. Will Spider-Man then be in Doctor Strange Multiverse of Madness? Which only excites me because it's Sam Raimi directing. And it's been a while before since I've enjoyed a Sam Raimi film. Yeah, Doctor Strange is another one that was disappointing to see in the MCU. Strangely, you preferred the TV version. I do. I really do. <laughs> Their version is just like, I don't know, an adult Harry Potter or something. Well, at least you get a reprieve from Marvel superheroes on Friday. Yeah, about as far as you could go. Schindler's List. We're ready to do something heavier, and it has been a patron request, and it's Spielberg, you know, let's face it, maybe Spielberg at his very best. Jacob, you, I, and Justin are going to go there for November patrons, and then next week we're going to stay in outer space. We're going to kind of do a twofer where we start with the right stuff, another patron choice, it'll be on the main feed, and then go to The Martian, because there's been so much activity about man's space exploration lately, William Shatner going up for, what? 15 minutes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, we're going to cover a few space movies by request, and then, yeah, we'll probably be back to comic book movies then. Yeah, so this Friday for Patron Schindler's List, you can be a patron on Apple, on Spotify, on Patreon, or on Podbean, $10 or more. You'll get Schindler's List as well as the full archive of well over 50 patron shows, including Lego Batman and Flash Gordon and... Enter the Dragon, Monster Trucks, <laughs> The Warriors, The Last Dragon, Apocalypse Now. There's a lot of shows in there for patrons of $10 or more. A lot of variety there. <laughs> and then on Tuesday, totally free Tuesday, I'm taking a little bit of a autumnal vacation, but the guys will be back on Tuesday with the right stuff. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And someday, oh, maybe... We will once again see the Avengers Assemble!
lot of fun for you. It was. Thank you for listening to this episode in the now-playing Avengers Retrospective Series. Lucky for us, we got the best seats in the house. Part of our Marvel Comics Movie Retrospective Series. Your work has impressed a lot of people who are much smarter than I am. We hope you've enjoyed the show. We're adjourned. We're adjourned for the day. Okay. You've been a delight. Head to NowPlayingPodcast.com to hear reviews of all the Marvel Cinematic Universe films. From Iron Man to Guardians of the Galaxy to Endgame, we've reviewed every Marvel film at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Good luck keeping up. And while at our website, you can find reviews of other Marvel movies, including the Fox X-Men, Deadpool, Daredevil, and Fantastic Four films, New Line Cinema's Blade Trilogy, The Punisher movies, Sony's Spider-Man, Ghost Rider, and Venom films, and dozens more. I'm bringing the party to you. You can also find reviews of every DC Comics movie, plus hundreds of other movie reviews of series like A Nightmare on Elm Street, The Fast and the Furious, Ghostbusters, Jurassic Park, and more. Find over 1,000 in-depth movie review podcasts at nowplayingpodcast.com. Therefore, what I'm saying, if I'm saying anything, is welcome back. Subscribe to Now Playing on your podcast app of choice and get an all-new movie review every single week. We're going to knock their socks off. Want even more Now Playing reviews? By being a Now Playing patron or donor, you can get two reviews each week. Is that too much of a problem to ask? Because I'm, I'm... Okay, okay. I really need your help here. Now Playing is an independent podcast without any sponsors or ads. We rely on listener support to keep our show going. Are you going to step up or not? Donate to our show, and as our thank you, receive bonus podcasts. Whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. Supporters get perks including bonus podcasts every Friday, the ability to listen to us live, and you can even pick a movie for us to review and join us on the podcast. We need heroes. We need you. Find all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. It's a small price to pay for salvation. You can also compare notes with us on Letterboxd. Go to letterboxd.com forward slash now playing to see what our hosts are watching when we're not recording podcasts. And follow Now Playing on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and our YouTube channel. It's strange. Maybe. Who am I to judge? Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. Well, multi-platform global operation. Associate produced by Jason Latham. He's pretty good at that, right? Now Playing is edited by Arnie. Now might be a really good time for you to get angry. That's my secret, Cat. I'm always angry. Now Playing credit narration by Brock. Are you making your voice deeper? No. <gasps> you he are. just did it again. entertaining the cop, This man. is my voice. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the views of Enganza Media Incorporated. Just stick to the official statement and soon this will all be behind you. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of their respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. You really think that just because you have an idea, it belongs to you? Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of and may not be used without the express written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated. On behalf of the Time Variance Authority, 
I hereby arrest you for crimes against the sacred timeline. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2021. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Hey, fellas. Hey, wait, where are you going? I've got so many more stories to tell. Is this what you wanted? No, but it, it was weird when Icarus, like, just crapped in a bucket in the domo for 10 minutes. What? It was a joke. It's a nomad land joke. <laughs> <laughs> About oh, Francis okay. McDormand crapping yes, in a yes, bucket. Yes, Got it. Got it. <laughs> you're not seeing in humans. You're not seeing Eternals in the opening weekend, but. <laughs> yeah, Australia, New Zealand, you got something good in those meat pies. Yeah. Sounds gross. <laughs> It's just meat and gravy and a crust. It's delicious. Oh, yeah, like a pot pie, only good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Better than chicken pot pie, which I don't like. You get breakfast ones with eggs and bacon in it. Oh, they're so good. We don't ever have to worry about it too much. That People won't feel like they've made it so important that it's Jar Jar and can't be ignored. Jar Jar was ignored. He was only in one movie. No, he came back. No, he was in all three. I saw him at the council. I, he was there. Yeah, he gave the he gave Palpatine emergency powers. He's the one that led that vote. Yeah, he all he was terrible <laughs> in every single one, but the most terrible in Phantom Menace. Yes, I agree. He he got to say excuse me in part three, and that's it. <laughs> it wasn't excuse me. No, it was excuse me. excuse me. <laughs> Not excused. But anyway, different different subject. <laughs> Avengers Assemble! Feels very strange for this one. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they did. It'll take millions of years. I gotta go back and rewatch the commercials. I swear in one of the commercials, there's a moment of Icarus that says Eternals Assemble. And that was not in this movie, but I swear it's in the ad. It was filmed. Well, you can go for that line if you want to. But you should say it like they do and just like mumble it. Eternals Assemble. <laughs> <laughs>